this is a production of Dirty Mo Media. The Dale Jr. Download. Hey everybody, it's Dale Jr. back again for another episode of the Dale Jr. Download. My co-host Mike Davis is here. How you doing, Mike? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Awesome. Schultz and Leah are uh, over there in the booth. Going to be helping us out with the show today. we got our guest, Dr. Jerry Punch. So, uh, Dr. Jerry Punch, obviously, he's a doctor, but... Uh, we're going to talk to him about this. He uh, worked for ESPN, a lot of other different people throughout the, you know, throughout his career uh, as a as a pit road a- analyst, uh, pit road reporter. Just had a lot of different roles in the sport on the broadcast side, right? So uh, he's got stories. You know, he's he's had some pretty incredible experiences, kind of behind the curtain, if you will. And he's going to share a lot of that with us. He's told me for years that he had a lot of things that he wanted to talk about. We're going to get him on the show. Uh, to talk about some of that stuff. Um, so, anyways, before uh, before I guess we get to our uh, guest with Dr. Jerry Punch, did you have a good weekend? I had a great weekend. Weather was nice. Uh, thought it was going to rain. You know, watched a little bit of racing. Yeah, uh, Xfinity race was amazing. Schultz and, and, and crazy. Um, is there anything that we need to talk about that you think that people are going to expect us to talk about on the open today? I put Steve Latart was a crew chief again. I think oh, people okay. want you, you thought, to yeah. comment on that. I'm sure they. I think they also want to hear hear from, <laughs> from us about Noah. But yeah, so you guys watch all that, right? Yeah, yeah. Saw it all go down. Tough stuff. Yeah. Um, I've watched this. Uh, you know, kind of from a distance, and uh, you know, don't really feel like i need to jump into the middle of this this is kind of something noah is working through himself but uh i don't know you know i i have a i struggle a little bit with with uh i called noah yesterday and we try i tried to get a hold of him and he called me back later but we couldn't we kind of we kind of played phone tag a little bit but haven't really been able to talk but i just kind of wanted to share with him you know i'm not i'm i'm not into telling noah how to act or what to do or what i think is right or wrong and um I can understand absolutely uh, heat of the moment, get out of the car, being frustrated, um, say something about another driver. All that stuff's kind of fair game. You know, once you're at the racetrack and, and you get interviewed, um, I can understand how frustrated he must have been. But I kind of thought maybe I, I, I might share with Noah a little bit about what I know of, uh, of David Starr and what I know of Carl uh, Long. You know the owner of the car, the thirteen car, and I man, they were running twelfth lead lap, pretty mm-hmm. good. Should, should we say what happened actually uh, before we get into? Yeah, this go part? ahead, Mike. Oh, oh, I'm just saying. No, go ahead. Noah Gregson, our driver, was leading the race. Had him covered all day, yeah. didn't he? He was fast. Just and he was super fast. Uh, you know, he's he he's teeing it up as we're going into this event. Like, man, I'm this is my thing. I'm I can't wait to run the fence. I'm on this. His attitude and his approach was to go attack, and attack he did, and he was seizing the race, you know, seizing the moment. How many laps were left when, uh, uh, you know, a car in front of him who he was about to put a lap down? So he was on the lead lap. David Starr, veteran driver, been been around a long time, but in one of the, you know, uh, lesser-funded cars, cut a tire apparently, and, man, Noah just drove right into the back of him, uh, right there against the wall, killed our day. Uh, lost the race, obviously, and uh, then I guess Noah said some things after the race, just out of frustration and anger, and probably all kinds of things. And then yeah. David Starr or Carl Long, which one? Somebody came well, back with a statement later, and they're saying, "Look, Carl, Carl, did. yeah." I think the the issue really isn't what uh, he Noah said after the race, right? Um, it, he's kind of continued to 
peck at this on social media for the last couple of days. Okay. And so, um, you know, I, and, you know, that's, I kind of think it's best to let a driver kind of uh, work that out, you know, and go through that experience, right? And, and I have a feeling and I hate to even I hate to even broach the subject on the podcast because I kind of want it to just play itself out because I have this feeling, knowing Noah the way I do, that he's going to under he's going to sort of eventually through all this back and forth and the the response from his uh from from his posts and so forth on social media that he's going to realize who Carl is or what Carl's about and what Carl's done and, and David or so forth and have, have some sort of a me- meeting in the middle, maybe a, a bit of a better appreciation, I guess, of what those guys were out there trying to do in their own race, running their own race. So I was kind of hoping to let that work itself out and see what happened and see if Noah, see what Noah, you know, continues to, how he continues to sort of figure this out. Um, it's, it's interesting. You don't want to be a helicopter owner. You yeah. we always talk about helicopter parents getting involved in their kids' battles, you know, fighting it for them, and the detriment that ultimately comes out of that long term. The you know the kids don't they grow up to be adults that don't yeah. know how to you know handle. I can't a crisis. Yeah, I'm not going to sit here on the podcast and tell you what I think is right or wrong. I haven't had a chance to talk to Noah about that yet, and I don't think that's fair to sit here and tell you everything I think about it without having to say that say that to the man himself. So that's fair. But I think it is interesting to, to, or best maybe to let this continue or not continue. I don't know if they're, you know, they're going to, you know, I don't know how far, we, you know, this is going to go or whatever. But I, I feel like in the end, the result will be a little, Noah's going to have a little better understanding of kind of what a team like that is kind of out there trying to accomplish and do, right? And uh, man, I, I, I didn't even, I didn't even know they were running so well. I have a little bit of a soft spot in my heart for Carl. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went to North Wilkesboro in the 90s. I wasn't racing yet. I think it was 92 or 93. I wasn't racing late models yet. They had this late model stock race on uh, the day before. And uh, even at that young age, I kind of realized what a massive stage that must have been for these late model stock car drivers. Uh, this is late model stock car, something I wanted to do. Um, and something I felt like I was really close to to uh, accomplishing, um, you know, getting into something like that. And there was this car out there. It was uh, red and green and yellow Romeo guest sponsorship, and it was Carl running second. He ran second the whole race. I don't know why. I guess it was the colors of the car or something, but it stood out to me. And then I started seeing Carl uh, racing um, other races in the late models, and then he moved on up, and he's, you know, we know Carl, as we know Carl now, we know him from his Xfinity racing, flipping down the backstretch at Rockingham, and just, you know, kind of this hard luck guy is just trying to make it, and uh, the big penalty he had for the motor issue at Charlotte years ago, they they sort of... Made an example out of him. I mean, yeah, like, I don't even, we should dive into the, that somewhere on this podcast yes, one day about what happened there, because there's more to that story. Um, as to why you'd ban- you'd 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 penalize a guy like that, right? Like that that you know can't handle that type of of a penalty, but um, yeah, it set Carl back. Uh, but anyhow, he ends up working his way back into the sport. So I know th- I know Carl that way. I also became a really big fan of Timmy Hill for whatever reason, other than Timmy would come drive Carl's car. I'd stand on pit road with my car next to them before qualifying or something like that, and. Uh, 
Timmy would be smiling no matter what. Mm. He knows he's got maybe not one of the best cars out there, maybe one of the worst cars out there for that particular race, but would be so happy that he was there. And uh, I've watched Timmy, you know, through that relationship with Carl, create his own truck team. And, and you know, now they've actually taken Carl's program and made it uh, somewhat competitive. I mean, again, running out there in the top, in the lead lap on, at the end of this race, 12th place. They've had some good runs with Timmy at Bristol and other places. Um, so I kind of have had my ear to the ground with that program for a really long time because of the uh, connection with Carl and, and just knowing him since the early 90s and watching him. So, and I wish, I guess I wish Noah knew all of that. And I think he might have a different sort of approach to this whole thing. Um, but Noah doesn't know all that history, right? Well, I also think that Noah is probably just acting or reacting to the incident, which I think he's well within his right to be, to be angry and to say, I, I don't know that I would have done anything different. I, whatever Noah said, I did not take it as certainly after the race as personal. Yeah. Because he wouldn't know all the backstory. No. I do think. Having said that, I always have this uneasy feeling when when some of the better funded race teams talk down to the lesser funded race teams. Mm-hmm. Like it just feels icky a little bit to me. Yeah. Because we just know that those guys, man, they are they are living a completely different lifestyle. They are something that you have to be able to appreciate because that is pure passion. And and Carl Long, I love that guy. Yeah. I, I've gotten to know him over the years. Dude, you know, walking through the garage, always got a smile on his face, stains all over his shirt, you know, just just a blue-collar worker. I don't know. I just think I, Noah saying what he said was purely from the racing uh, incident, which is fine. I mean, listen, he got he, he should have won the race. That would have been heartbreaking. So I give him a I give him a pass on that, and I also think that the uh, I don't know. Is it is it okay to like everybody in this story <laughs> and not have a problem with anybody? I think is, it is. Is that I, possible? I think it is, and I think it's okay to hope that there's a there's some understanding between the two in at, at some point. You know, as they go as this process as they go through this process, maybe Noah learns a little bit about them, and they learn a little bit about Noah to better understand each other. You know, and typically that's how it happens. You 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 know you go to the racetrack and you get in a disagreement with somebody or a fight with somebody, and and it may take. Oh, it may be a couple of days, it may be a couple of years, but you end up, you know, becoming somewhat agreeable. Right. And by the way, when you react, when I'm saying reacting to a racing situation, what I mean is you can just remove all logic out of it. I mean, like you, you don't have to sit there and go cross-examine everything because when you've just got out of a race car and when you're still reacting some, and, and Noah's so emotional, look, we give you grace because you're not going to act necessarily reasonably. Or you're not going to factor in everyone's backstories because you're just pissed that they just wrecked you and you didn't win the race. And that's okay. That when you react, like you guys, when y'all would get out of a race car, I, I, you know, you might cause a big wreck at Talladega or something and they go, Dale Jr., what happened? Well, you don't even know. Yeah. <laughs> not even, you don't even know. At the, the time, thing, no, I didn't know the guy cut a, I know. Cut a tire. There's, there's a part of me that doesn't, doesn't want to restrain Noah at all because right. his approach right now is how he needs – this is – he he will me and him talked last year and uh, you know we had the incident at Texas um, with the eighteen car the the monster car he wrecked Riley uh, early in the race and me and Noah sat down and uh, you know when that happened everybody was like oh Noah's wild he's rough he's hitting everybody he's you know he's crazy 
so me and Noah sat down and I said, hey, I said, you know, you're going to need to be this aggressive in the chase. I said, why don't we not, you know, do this for a while? My, well, let's go through the summer without running into people and, and spinning people out because we're going to need to probably do that in the chase. We might have to move somebody out of the way. And, uh, you know, let's just, you know, not pile up, uh, not, not just let the world pile on top of us, all this bad publicity and, and pressure creating a lot of uh, unnecessary attention and just, uh, you know, put it in your pocket and hold it. And so uh, w- with that said, I think that I, it, it, it's not his style. Um, and he, he felt, I think he felt, you know, just judging by his comments and, the, and you know, when, he, when the chase started, he, he seemed to have this attitude of, I'm going to go back to doing what I do and racing how I want to race and how I think I need to race to do well. I'm not doing you know as well as I want to do, and I think I'm not approaching this the way I should or want to, you know. So he went into the race at Homestead. You know, he's I watch his social media. I see I see him on there, you know, pumping himself up and and trying to get people to believe in him. And uh, I kind of don't want to affect that, you know, his process or whatever it is he needs to do to to stay fired up and up on the wheel. But I'm hoping that, you know, through this experience, somehow or another, he can kind of get some appreciation for Carl and, and David and uh, not just what they're trying to do out there on the racetrack today, but kind of who they were, who they've been. You know, the guys have deserve a little respect. And, you know, we know David to Mike through some other uh, some other things we do off the racetrack. So, but I'm, I'm, I'm watching. It'll be interesting to see how it goes. I, st- I still plan to talk to Noah and, and just get his opinion on where, where things are and how he plans to move forward you know i like this approach you're taking like look you know you don't need to sit there and be uh inject yourself into, yeah, I don't the, think into the story that's not it's not what we're gonna do i don't think that's good so uh anyhow and uh yeah so uh latart crew chief yeah can i be honest this is gonna okay well I'll, maybe this time all right i gotta be honest man and this is just a personal talk uh, maybe we maybe I should just have this talk with Mike. Okay, okay? nobody else is listening. Mike is always Mike is a lot of a lot of times Mike is my therapist. Okay, <laughs> I'll come to Mike and I'll go, Hey Mike, I feel this way. All right, talk, should, I, should I feel this way? All right, turn, dim the lights and just talk to me, Dale. <laughs> Man, when I saw the news that Latart was going to crew chief this car, my heart hurt. Well, Dale, it you hurt have to my heart, s- Mike. Search yourself and ask why is that? Come on, man. Why I'm is having that? this conversation? <laughs> All right, don't make a joke of this. So, why did your heart hurt? All right, here's my real reaction. Why? I, All right, it took me back to, I think it was fourteen. Didn't we learn in the middle of the year? Oh yeah, right. Steve right. was leaving. He was leaving. Yeah. So, all right, let's go back. All okay. right. I'm in my. I get to the racetrack at Charlotte. I'm assuming this was in May, uh, sometime around the, the May race. And I get to my bus and getting ready to go to the to the hauler and practice, right? We're in the middle of a pretty awesome year. We won Daytona 500. Um, things are going good. Are you sure we found out in the middle of the last year or was it in 13? Because I feel like we might have went into... Could somebody, I, I don't remember. Can, I, I just There was a lot of racing way, left. Yeah. And, but we were just coming off something very successful. Right. <laughs> we're like, at, I mean, we're like, 14 was a great year. We're at the top. Like yeah. we're, we're back, we, baby. We, we, we had a great year. Anyways, we're not at the top. We're doing well. We're near the top. We felt we we're were, we the were top. feeling good. We're sharing the top. You'd won a Daytona 500. I know it was after that. So 
On January 9th, 2014, it was announced that Latart would be leaving Hendrick Motorsports after the 2014 season. So you probably found out. In 13. Yeah. So we're in the, oh. okay. So in 2013. Wow, I, I don't no. remember that. So way. 2013, we're at Charlotte. Maybe it was the second Charlotte race late in the, late in the year. I think 13 wasn't too bad. Uh, we're progressing, getting better. Anyhow, I'm in my bus getting ready. To, I just got to the track. I'm getting ready to go in. And I don't know how I found out, but I got a, maybe it was a phone call or something, but I'm standing there and, and, and me, and I, I learned that Latart's going to take a job for NBC in 2015. You learned from him? No. Ooh. So I knew that NBC was coming in, right? They got a deal. They're coming in to, to they're going to start a new team. I called, I called NBC, one of the execs there, and, um, I said, uh, y'all know who y'all need to hire for this is Dale Jarrett. I said, Dale Jarrett's one of the best, and he's going to be available, I believe. I think y'all should put Dale Jarrett in there. Because ESPN was leaving the sport. Yeah. That's what I I'm talking. Yeah. I think I'm talking to this guy while he knows, possibly, that they're going to hire Steve. I don't know. But I'm sitting there, I'm sitting there on the phone trying to <laughs> give my opinion on who I think should be in the next booth for NBC. And they hired Steve right out from under me. So basically, I felt like that that NBC, Steve, everybody went and did all this and didn't even decide to tell me or didn't even decide to share, hey man, we would like to think we would like to do me and Steve were were this new we'd only been together a couple years and we're this great new thing. It's we, we we got together and it was our both our last chances. We we're rejuvenating our careers. We got the rest of our lives to just go do the best we can do. Like we're on this new path, right? Anyhow, um, I'm getting a little, little bit in the weeds, but it broke my heart. I mean, I cried. I stood in my bus on that day at that racetrack and cried by myself. And uh, then I, you know, when I pulled my together i called steve and he goes hey i'm sorry i got i wanted to tell you a lot of things going on couldn't get couldn't really get to tell you just yet but yeah let's let's sit down and talk about this and i think he came to the bus and we talked about it and man it just hurt my heart hmm. and so when i saw <laughs> this is i know we're so far removed from all that well, i got questions but i'm letting you finish but uh yeah when i my initial reaction when i saw that he was going to crew chief the uh seven uh, it just took me back to that day, and it made my heart hurt. It, now, immediately, I realized this isn't, you know. He's not leaving. He's not leaving. Um, but I don't know, man. You know, I was, an hour later, I was totally fine with it. And he, I mean, him even talked about. Did you find out, and, and we got to be vague, but we were on a, uh, on a uh, special project day. Did you find out the day we were out doing that project? Is that when you found out? And did you find out th about Steve going to yeah. do this one-week crew chief? Yeah. We're talking about him going to crew chief for a weekend. Yes. <laughs> By the way, this is what we're talking about uh, with Spire. I think it was during the lunch break. Was it really? Okay. Could you tell? Uh, no. Hey. <laughs> you see my, yes. Did you see my sadness? I, I didn't know why you're the tears, but I just felt like that. You, know, <laughs> you were over there kicking things. I didn't know what was up about that. No, uh, no, no. no um, I found out about the same time on Twitter. Yeah, I did too. So uh, I didn't know when you had found out. And uh, <laughs> boy, glad I didn't bring it up. And <laughs> I was just like. So, so I guess I'm trying to. I, I, I'm. 
I appreciate your honesty, Amen. and that's interesting to know about how you reacted to that in 2013. Uh, I'm just trying to understand how you connect the two. I don't. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I don't think I did because in you know minutes later, I shook my head like, "What? Get out of it! Yeah, yeah snap out of snap, this! Snap out of this! And uh, get yourself together!" You know. And then I'm talking. <laughs> you know. And then I'm talking to Steve. I'm like, "Man, this will be fun. Go have fun. Throw, throw. You know, go for it." You know. That last year when he was crew chiefing for me, his the way he called races was awesome because he didn't care. Right? It was his last year, and I was thinking, "Man, you can go in there, major upset. You know, top ten. Uh, off some incredible strategy or something, you know. But uh, I have a theory. But I, I think that that hurt, man. I that was one thing in my professional career that really, really hurt. Did and it hurt you because he didn't come to you and seek your no, advice first? Oh, it hurt on. me because it was in. It was something great that was ending. I know, but you. It seems to me that listen. First of all, he's well within his right. He's got a family. He's got he's got things that are more important to him than you or racing. You know, his wife, his kids, all these things. Golf, maybe. <laughs> so it seems to me that your issue wasn't necessarily that either time, but just the fact that you didn't know about it and therefore felt like you were a little slighted. No. I mean, I was floored because it was like the I never expected it. Like it was... Because you didn't... Because he didn't come to you first. I think you're saying the same thing I'm saying. I'm not. It didn't. I, I mean, I felt like we were better friends that he would have told me before I would have found out on my own. But that was so secondary to I really finally got a crew chief that gets me and I'm and, and that we're finally getting something done here. And that's going to end. Can I tell you something about you that you don't probably know? OK. <laughs> OK. Because we're in a therapy session. Nobody's listening. Okay. You respond better when l let's let's put this in the framework of our business relationship and all the brand stuff that you and I do and there have been times when I've screwed up there's been times when I've done stuff and I have learned over time I've been with, working with you for 15 16 years it's better you respond better when you know yeah we, we, listen if I come to you and fall on the sword, if I've screwed up, or if I come to you seeking advice or something like that, you just respond better. Now, if you find out another way, hell cometh with you when you respond. You know what I'm saying? I mean, yeah, like, th I get, this is I, it. I go way over, to over the top. Well, you may be well within your emotion, you may yeah. be Yeah, but you'll be like, you know, whatever. Like, if I were to book a guest on this show. And not tell me. And not tell you. And it may be somebody you love. But I'd say, listen, it's not good for me to not tell you. And I'll be like, Dale, listen, I, I can come to you. I'm better off saying, listen, I would like to book this person. What do you think? And you'll be like, go for it. Yeah. I love it. Or something like that. It's just you like to be involved off the jump. And you always respond better. And, yeah. and you always treat things better. That, that, that's just a fact. That's just a fact. And maybe I that's agree. something that you have in, in common but with I, most people. I but, would think I was... This hurt because it'd be like Kelly walking in here right now out of nowhere going, hey, I got a, I got another opportunity. I got to take it. I'm leaving right now. And I'd be like, whoa. Like, this is a forever thing. This ain't no I'm going to leave whenever I get another deal. Just like me and you, man. Mm -hmm. You ain't going to where? Uh, well, I, I have to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, and my, you know, you may come up to me one day and go, hey, I, th this, there's a change in my life. 
that's happening. That's how I would approach it. I know. I would never spring something on I'm not going to like it. Right. But I would say, And I'm going to be hurt. He's going to cry. I would and I'm going to cry. I would involve you from the, not the, not here's my decision, that, but I would involve you in the conversation about, about, hey, I know. Here's but, what I would do. And you would, you would be able to process that way better. So you're go, going back to Latart. Yeah. I don't know how you found out in 2013. If it was on, was it in a very public way? Like, did you no, find out? In, I was in my bus and got, got a text insight? message or a okay. call or something. Okay, that's how it was. All right. So, yeah, you, know, you would have been hurt man, by that. I hate to say this. It could have been I was on the phone with TJ just, and he was like, hey, man, I heard something. You know, because TJ, spotters, ear to the ground, that yeah. kind of thing. He's like, I think it's a, a crew chief. Or, duh, duh, duh. You know, it was like vague. Yeah. And he, and, I don't remember. Well, that I could be making it up. that would have definitely put me on a wrong trajectory if I find out from TJ. <laughs> just it, on it, principle, what, it, it just was, on principle. <laughs> that well, so did, have you talked to Latard about this crew chief thing? Did, like since this all news, like he went and did the deal, right? Yeah. How'd they do? Blew an engine and okay. Only did like half the race. I mean, you made a funny tweet about it. I know that was after we talked. Oh, so you did talk to him? Yeah. Okay. He and called so, me. Fine. He just called me, like literally. I learned about it the same way everyone else did. I had my little pity party for two seconds, and then he called me ten minutes later. And he goes, "Hey man, what's going on? Just calling, checking in." And <laughs> like we do, we yeah. he, we we do that. Like we stay in. Yeah. We feel like that we, me and him, Burton and Rick, are on a group text that's been going ever since I started with them, and we communicate every day, every day. Yeah, we talk. Y'all are tight, and um. Uh, just about goofiness, right, going on in our lives, and so he was just—he was calling me to say, "Hey, man, I'm gonna do this thing." That's cool. Which I thought was super cool. I, I think it's important people to know, and I don't even know if we're able to talk say this, but because, but you know, when we when you decided to go to NBC, we have it in the contract in the language that Steve Latart has got to be there. Yeah, like. It's important to people know. I mean, maybe this helps people put it into context how important Steve Latard is to Dale. Like he didn't. The TV broadcasting wasn't going to be as interesting to him if Steve Latard wasn't in the booth with him. Yeah. So maybe you know that ought to say something. Yeah. Now my, if he goes back in crew chiefs, I yeah full time leaves NBC. I'm stalking Steve Latard. <laughs> stalking Steve Latard. That's what I'm doing. Well, that was a great conversation. Thanks, Mike, for the therapy. <laughs> you feel better? Yeah. Let's get <laughs> let's go ahead and get our guest, Dr. Jerry Punch. Come on in, Doc. Jerry Punch has a comment on Dale Earnhardt. Guys, Richard Childress just told me a minute ago that Earnhardt Radio the group. Dale, what a finish here in Atlanta. Incredible finish. Well, it was. Uh, well, Dale Earnhardt climbs out with his ninth victory at Bristol. And Dale, that's what Bristol's all about. Take us to those last couple laps. Didn't mean to really turn around, meant to rattle his cage, Joe. Earnhardt has won it here in Atlanta. The final lap at Talladega. Down to victory lane, here's Jerry Punch. Here's a news flash. Dale Earnhardt in victory lane at Daytona. Earnhardt Jr. and Sr. in victory lane. An amazing drive, those final four laps. Dale Earnhardt Jr. sweeps both at Pocono. There he is, <laughs> Dr. Jerry Punch. Yes, sir, man. We've been excited to be able to talk to you today. Wow, he's really here, <laughs> Doctor Jerry Punch. People have been asking. Why would you? Do you know? Uh, why you, would you doubt? Because you know why? Because a lot of people this week. I don't know if you've noticed this on on social media, Doc, but 
people have been going, you know, you need to get is Dr. Jerry Punch. So you need to get. And I'm, I'm like, man, I could really have a lot of fun with this, uh, these tweets here. But several people have been saying that. So you've yeah. been, you come uh, highly requested. People wondering where you are, what you're well, doing. I, I appreciate that. Thank you, people, for whoever's making that request. I put my glasses on. I'm getting a little older, so I need my glasses. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And for the people who requested that, I appreciate yeah. that. It's, uh, it's an honor, man. I, I, watch, I watch the podcast. I watch uh, Lost Speedways. Love that show. Absolutely love that show. I'm a, I'm a I'm an addict there in terms of, uh, but uh, this is so cool. So cool what are you doing? Um, I am. Um, I you know I did. I still do some college football. Really? Uh, you know I do. Um, uh, you know I basically my contract at ESPN after 33 years or whatever went away at the end of end of 18, and they said would you do some games? So in 19 I was supposed to do a couple of games. Ended up doing 10 games. And then this year I did four or five games and had two or three canceled because of COVID. So, and then I just, my, my daughter works for NASCAR and she loves it and does a little show. We're international, a little pace lap show. And she and I do our own little podcast we have fun with called Rolling with the Punches. Mm-hmm. So, you know, she thinks it's really cool to sort of follow, follow in your father's footsteps kind of thing. So I know you understand that, but, but we have fun because we, like this, we talk about, you know, she says, Dad, you talk about the legacy people, the old guys. And the stories behind the scenes, and people may not have, not might not have been able to tell on television back in those days. And she talks about the young people, you know, the, and the the current or, or up and coming young drivers. So we try to cross a lot of a lot of boundaries. And I sit home and watch you guys on yeah. Sundays. You guys, uh, you guys, at NBC does such a great job. And thanks. And uh, yeah, it's awesome. How is he as a broadcaster? I mean, oh, we, we, we don't ask gracious. we don't we don't ask no, people he, this. You know what? He does a great job. He does a really really good job. And 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 here, you know, I I just think it's. You know, it's it's fun because you have people. Uh, people want to hear what you have to say. Um, you know, uh, you could tell, and I'm be honest, you could tell when you first started. Everybody's real nervous. Everybody's nervous. <laughs> and uh, you know, you got you got Jeff there, who's great. You know, uh, the whole Stevie. I mean, but everyone has a niche, and you guys really cover that niche. And I love the energy. I love the energy. <laughs> And uh, as a play-by-play guy that was in a booth with Benny Parsons and Ned Jarrett, you know, I understand that you got guys standing beside, beside you have been in those cars and have driven those cars. And um, I'm, I'm just trying to stay out of the way. And that's what Rick Allen does a good job of. But Rick is so good at what he does, and he just stays out of the way and lets these guys just, hey, you cover what's happening, reach out and connect with the fans. And, uh, and you do such a good job. I mean, the fans sitting at home, I'm sitting at home, I, I keep thinking, you know, I can almost smell the gas and the tires burning because mm-hmm. I hear Junior say this or Jeff Burton say that or Stevie or something. So it's, it's cool. Well, let's talk about you, buddy. You raced. You used to race. <laughs> yeah, if you call it that. Yeah, I know. Okay. I did. So yeah. yeah, I did. You raced hobby stocks. Where at? Yeah, Hickory Speedway. What did you do that for? Yeah. Hey, I... I, uh, I, you know, I, I, like most kids growing up in the Carolinas, I'd, you know, when I was a teenager, I'd uh, go to all these different race shops and volunteer time to learn how to do stuff. Put, you know, uh, for Tommy Houston, Harry Gant, uh, the guys that were the, the late model, you know, heroes up there. Just loading trucks and yeah, cleaning well, I, or I actually, picking up? Whatever, built, you know, sweeping, and I learned to weld, and I, you know, I started learning some simple engine tuning stuff and, you know, bo- you know some uh, body work, and if they'd back it in a while, we'd be three, four of us over there working on jacking out the, you know. So I learned a lot of things about front-end setups and stuff and did a lot of work on, on the cars. And I'm not sure I was real good at any of it, but um, my mom was in a beauty shop. This is, su- this is Southern folks, beauty shop. She was in a beauty shop un- under a hairdryer <laughs> one, one Saturday, and the lady sitting beside her says, hey, my, my husband races, but he didn't have any help. He's, he's by himself. He runs Hobby Stop at Hickory, and he works on a car in a barn. And, uh, and my mom says, well, hey, my son helps all these different guys all over town, so maybe I'll get him to go over and help your husband. So I went over there, 
and the guy's name was Jerry Setzer, and um, he had a hobby stock car, a 56 Chevy, and worked on it in a barn. And I said, hey, I'll, I'll be your helper. And he said, well, you'll be my crew chief, because I was the only guy we had working besides him. So well, he and I would work on the car, under the car, and uh, his little his son, a little bitty boy, he was just a small kid then, Dennis Setzer, uh, <laughs> would move the lantern for us under the car so we could see. And then Jerry ended up winning the Hobby Stop Championship that year, not because I did anything special, but because, just because I think he had some help. And uh, he won. If you won five races, you got promoted. He didn't have a car to go up. He said, next year you're driving the car. So that's really how I got in the Hobby Stock situation. And then from there to... I got a chance to drive a late model that uh, that that came about. How so, did that go? Uh, it was fun. I mean, it was uh, you know my my brother's brother-in-law was a kid was a guy named uh, Junior Setzer, no related to, no relation to, to Jerry or Dennis, but his uncle was Bobby Isaac, and so he was building short track cars for Bobby Isaac, and I started working on some of those. And he had a banjo car, and then we had a Laughlin car. Then I went over to Falston and worked with some guy nobody ever heard of to build what they call a short length car and uh, Bobby Wellman and uh, I went over there and we were in a barn building a car trying to try this new deal and uh, Isaac liked the car how it ran at Hickory so we built that car and and the next thing you know they built another one they bought one for me to run it and so I, I would go to I'd go to Asheville and pulled in here's you know Sam Ard, Tommy Ellis, you know Gant, Houston, you know Ray Hendrick, all these guys. You know here I'm trying to make the field at, at Asheville with it. You know which, I, which Asheville? A- Asheville Weaverville. Speedway. Asheville Weaverville. Yeah, gotcha. So you know Jack. And I remember. Uh, so anyway, I, I did that for a little while, and that was right before I was leaving to go to med school. And I realized I couldn't I couldn't uh, race uh, in in med school. It was too dangerous. So Ned Jarrett, who was promoting Hickory, said, "Hey, if you want to be connected, why don't you come back on on Saturdays and uh, if you can get away and uh, and I'll let you work with me in the tower." Hold yeah. up, hold up. All right, so. When you're in high school, yeah, what's steering you to med school? Well, you know, I, I don't know other than the fact growing up in a small town, we had a small town GP who what's the GP? A general practitioner, mm-hmm. and he was uh, he was like the you know Marcus Welby MD kind of guy. He just came out did, did did house calls, and he probably saved my life when I was three or four years old. And I had croup and put me in a wash tub on the back porch and in, in ice water in the winter time to break my fever. I always wanted to be like that guy. And uh, and I used to go sit in his office, which was a which was a frame house and on the square in Newton, and people would come walking in with a bag of tomatoes or cucumbers. He, you know, people didn't pay him; they paid him in you know what they had, you know, they brought in. Yeah, paid him in vegetables. In vegetables, and you know, and I love vegetables, so uh, I I sort of wanted to be a, that kind of guy, you know. And okay, that's what that's why I wanted to go to med school. And and so while you're racing, you're you know you're enjoying this this experience racing cars and being around race shops. Was there ever a time in, in where you thought, man, maybe I might put it off or not go to med school or maybe I should, I want to pursue either, you know, whatever racing was going to provide you? Well, I mean, I, I, I knew it was tough and, um, I was around a lot of really good guys and, and, uh, that I, that I stayed close with. Nobody was making a living doing it, right? No, so, nobody, everybody was, I mean, uh, you know, I, I knew your dad, you know, and, and we all, we all had you know, big bushy mustaches and long hair and torn jeans and dirty fingernails, and none of and none, we were dirt poor. We were just dirt poor, and, and I, so I had a chance to go to med school, borrowed money to go to med school, and I figured that's where I needed to you be. You borrowed money? Oh yeah, from I, who? From, from the you could borrow it on a scholarship. It was a need based thing, scholarship yeah. deal, and um, and I met the need. So, and then you know Ned and Ned knew I love racing. Ned Jarrett knew I love racing and knew I love med school and 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 I went to med school at Wake Forest at Bowman Gray School of Medicine. And so it was only an hour from Hickory 
and they had a deal where they told you every weekend you needed to take some mental health time because it's so stressful to be a medical sure. doctor. And so that mental health time meant I could get away a few hours on Saturday yeah. and drive to Hickory. Had to get out and get my car running and drive to Hickory, and Ned paid me $35, which would buy, I was married back then, and would buy diapers and formula for the week. To do what? I would sit in the tower beside Ned and, uh, and run the scoreboard and run the, uh, run the caution lights, and basically he was the announcer. I was sitting beside him, sort of the operations guy, and then we had the two, the two guys uh, sitting beside me, like Robert Black, these guys that were officials. Offic- officials, yeah. And uh, Ned, how, did, Ned did all the announcing. How was that experience? It was a blast until one night Ned couldn't be there, and well, <laughs> and and uh, well, Ned Ned had it all set up. Ned was going to be inducted into the NMPA Hall of Fame at Darlington. What year was this? You Gosh, I don't remember Just now. I, early seventies, yeah, late? It, yeah, early, yeah, early mid seventies, and I, I'm sitting there beside him, and and he had, we had a big ladies' night crowd. It's going to be a packed house of Hickory. So he got, but he's got it all set up. He's got Barney Hall coming in. You know, we all know Barney coming in from Elkins. Going to come in by, from Elkin down to Hickory, do the Saturday night big show, and then go on to Darlington later on. When Ned goes down to the NMPA Hall of Fame, walks in the dinner that night, looks up, and there's Barney Hall, the MC in the dinner. <laughs> and he says, uh-oh. And he goes over and Barney, he says, you're supposed to be at Hickory tonight, Barney. He says, my bad. And so Ned gets on the phone and calls Martha, his wife back at Hickory, says, Barney's not coming. So Martha's, we're all panicking. People are pouring in. Well, their oldest son, Glenn, is driving in the race. So all they got this younger son, Dale. So Martha calls Dale and says, hey, we got to do something. And Dale comes up in the tower, looks at me, says, I ain't talking. You know, he's pretty, little did we know back then he'd be one of the, one of the you know, yeah. great announcers. But he was so shy. And he said, you sit here beside Dad every week. You're going to do it, man. And I, so I, Picked up the microphone and started talking. We had a huge crowd, great race, and uh, Ned gets back the following week. Apparently, got some decent feedback, and he said, "Why am I killing my voice every Saturday night when you and I could be splitting this, yeah. and then I can go on Sunday and do MRN or whatever?" And that's how it all started for me. And Ned said, well, I'm, "Hey, I'm going to see if I can get you on MRN. You know, after you're doing this with me for a while." So that's why. okay. So you you did you did the track uh, you you did track announcing at Hickory, and then that led to an opportunity with MRN. Well, Ned took me to a couple places. He took me to Charlotte. Talked to Humpy and said, "Hey, I, you know, I got a guy that can help out a little bit here." And so I would, I'd got to do some PA at, at Charlotte. Uh, oh, with, at Charlotte, who was the PA guy? Bill Connell. Yes, Bill. Was Cannell. he there then? Oh, Bill was there then. Bill, so, tell people who Bill Connell is. Bill Connell was uh, he was a, a larger than life in, in physically and yes. figuratively guy. Uh, had a really deep voice and he could make ice melting sound exciting. I mean, he, he was he, he was, was amazing, Mike. Really? He yes, was, he was um, unbelievable. I mean, it's you know, and he did something. Uh, Bill Connell did something once on the PA. It was raining, and he they said get people fired up, and it was pouring rain. Nobody's no cars on the track. He made some, you know, coming out of turn four. You know, it's a tar over the wall. He was, and people were coming. <laughs> he, car doors were opening in the parking lot. They thought they were practicing. People were pouring in yeah. the rain. You know, he he was just unbelievable. He's a man. How do you spell it? <laughs> Is it Kate? So C O N N E L L, I believe. Okay. Bill, Bill, yeah. yeah. He was, you know, he was a big guy. You know who? Uh, I think there's some trivia. Is it, was he not in uh, Last American Hero? See that picture on the wall over there? Yeah. Look at that behind you. Yeah. The one on the right, far yeah. left. That's Bill Connell. That's, that's Bill Connell. That's, 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 that's Bill. Bill, that's Bill Connell's Cunnell. on our wall. Yeah. He's on your wall. I mean, hey, he was in that. He was in that one. I think he was in. You know, and he was in uh, Stroker Ace. I think yeah. some of those old. Oh yeah, old na- he was in an announcer then. Yeah, but yeah. there he's just a crewman a move, in a movie. Yeah, he was awesome, dude. He uh, would scream everything. Okay. Scream it. 
Oh, and and it, unbelievable. Yes, and, and he it would, sounded he would, awesome. You know, the old announcers back that would would cup their hand over their ear and be like, "I had no idea why." He, I just did it because he did it. You know, I didn't know. And then he would <laughs> he would take his hands. And why he did they do it? Wait, so you could you actually you can hear better if you pull your ear forward. To what? Uh, it's just, it gives a little bit of a resonant sound. To what? What are you listening? You, for? You're listening for you, basically. Oh, yourself. And so, like, if people, um, <laughs> you know, so it it just it just makes the sound. It makes yeah, yeah, yeah. it. And he would scream so hard he would literally have to hold parts of himself with his hands. Uh, and I'll leave it at that. How long did he do this? It, it, Years, it, Charlotte. Oh, like, 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 yeah. Till what year? Uh, gosh, you know, he had some. Ended up having some health issues, but he was he was. I mean, he was people would go to Charlotte because he's, you know, and the good thing is he liked to be in the tower, um, you know, and, and he didn't want to go down that. Pre- so when I started doing stuff at Charlotte, I got to go do pre-race. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd get all these great pre-race shows with Humpy Head, and I would be the guy hosting the pre-race. I'm down there with, you know, with, with Dick Clark of American Bandstand and Barbie Benton, you know, who was the co-host, you know, and, you know, all, all these great bands are brought in. So I got yeah. to do that. 2003 was when he had to leave the booth. There's a, I'm reading an awesome story. And in The Last American Hero, he played his part a little too well. They filmed the fight scene in Hickory. He was supposed to throw a punch. He actually broke the nose of the deputy sheriff up there. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. His voice was amazing. And, Mike, he, so when you go to a baseball game, right, you got the guy up in the, that's who he was at Charlotte. He didn't do TV. You know, you didn't seem, on to television, but you heard him if you were at the track. He was, you know, over the PA system, and it was we we piped that stuff. I would go and watch from the apartment or a condo in Charlotte, yeah, yeah. you know, and we piped it into there, and it was. So would he have been there in two thousand two or two thousand three? Maybe, yeah. Because I'm telling you, one of the I don't have many. I don't go around walking around talking about PA announcer stories right. at racetracks, but. If he was the guy that was at the dirt track when the World of Outlaws was there, I to this day still tell this story and imitate it because Danny Lasoski had wrecked. Dan- and, and I don't even know that it was him, but from what I'm hearing you guys say, this was him. <laughs> Danny wrecked. Right. And, and so this PA announcer would come across the, uh, during the breaks and, be, and give updates. Danny, the dude Lasoski is at the hospital. And, and and just whatever. And I don't even think he left the track, to be honest with you. But <laughs> during one of the breaks in between, like right before the right before the main, you hear update from the hospital. Danny, the dude Lasoski has suffered a broken leg or whatever. But Danny, the dude Lasoski has checked himself out of the hospital and he's a coming back. And I mean, yeah. that crowd went yeah. nuts. Yeah. And I swear to this day, I, st- I just love That sounds I just like him. Yeah, he's a checked himself out of the hospital and he's a coming back. <laughs> I mean, I, it was so awesome. He was like a cult hero at that point. Before we get too much further down the road with your broadcast and everything, you were the backup QB at NC State. I was the backup to the backup to the backup. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I was uh, I, I was a walk-on quarterback, and Lou Holtz was the head coach there. Oh, wow. And so we ran the option. So, yeah, you know, Lou hated fumbles, and I'll just quick, quick story is he hated fumbles. So the starting quarterback, you know, on a pitch, on a, on a triple option pitch, threw it behind the pitch back, and so he pulled him out of the game, pulled him out of a scrimmage, rather, at Carter Family Stadium. Backup quarterback starts, tries to hand it off to the fullback, fumble, pulls him out. A couple more fumbles go, and he looks around, and I'm standing beside him with a clipboard, you know, just making notes. 
He looks down at me, realizing I'm the only option left. And so he sends me in, and I realize triple option. I'm gonna, I'm not gonna pitch it. I'm not gonna give it. I'm gonna show him what an athlete I am. I'm gonna <laughs> keep it and run down the field. So I call the. I mean, it's supposed to be an option where you make a decision. Yeah. I was no decision for me. Mm-hmm. I was keeping the football. You're so right. I, I pull the pull it and fake the pitch and take off. I run like 11 yards downfield, run out of bounds. You know, I'm thrilled. He comes racing down the sidelines, puts his arm around me, and that big booming voice. He says to me, "Punch." It's not that you're slow. You just reach your maximum speed quicker than everybody else. <laughs> I said, Coach, I just ran 11 yards. He said, yeah, but a quick quarterback would have scored. And I said, yeah, okay. So I realized, yeah, I was the backup to the backup. So wow. uh, That's pretty impressive. So Ned Jarrett's kind of like a, a father figure yeah. at this point in your life. You're, you're getting opportunities at Hickory and Sharpmer Speedway, and then you go to MRM. All the while, you're a doctor. Like, uh, how are you balancing – like when I hear a doctor, yeah, uh, you know, and and I think about people that chose that profession, like that's twenty four seven. Like that takes yeah. everything you got just to be able to to acquire the knowledge needed to be able to go in there and perform the task and the job. So how are you balancing becoming a doctor and going to med school and all the things? Well, I mean, the the medical school was tough and it was demanding, and you know, I I you know, would Ned was kind enough to come to Winston Salem, uh, you know, and I couldn't go very many weekends. He'd pick me up on a Friday and we'd go down in his bush van. We'd go down ride to the track. I'd ride, Ned was like a second dad, and and uh, we would do qualifying on radio back back then. No one did qualifying. So we would do qualifying. We'd back his van on pit road, Darlington, and uh, we were the only qualifying brought with radio WFMX uh, out of Statesville. You know, we'd do that, and and the drivers would qualify, and then they would come get in the bush van with, or I would go get them. You know, here's Richard and Kale, and I mean, these guys just came to the van and sat and talked to Ned and I. And toward the end of qualifying, Ned said uh, he had to go do the bush pole award, so I would finish the show up. And we typically would have somebody stay over, and we could always depend on Marty Robbins to come back and hang with me. Yeah. I, you know, mm. I love Marty, you know. So Marty would come back, and he and I, it was a country station, so he and I would finish the, the, the radio broadcast of qualifying. But, yeah, it was – but as far as balance, I wanted to be an ER doctor so I could schedule my hours and schedule my time and not have to be on call all night. And, you know, you can't be a practicing physician in an office because – the patients can't look on TV. And say, oh, my doctor's at Talladega this weekend. Yeah. I got no shot. You know, or he's at, or he's at Riverside. You know, you know that I wouldn't be no fair. Shot. Yeah, I got no. So, so as an ER doc, you know, and then I ran my own ER group uh, later. Later, so I could schedule myself. And even though I ran the company, you know, it was uh, I could be gone back and forth, and it was cool. You know, it was cool. You know, your dad always kidding me. He said, you know, hey, you, you know, your buddies say you, you, he said, you went off to school. He said, uh, all you did is become a doctor. I became a champion. <laughs> you know? And I said, okay, I get it. I get Jesus. it. Yeah. So um, you mentioned Bobby Isaac. You were with him the night he passed away at Hickory. Yeah. yeah. Bobby was, uh, he was like a member of our family and, uh, and he had been through some rough times and he had, he'd been at the pinnacle, you know, winning yeah. sudden land speed records and we'd go to the races when I was a kid and. He'd be driving a K&K Dodge and Harry Hyde and, you know, Buddy Parrott and all those guys on that team. But if he'd fall out, we'd leave. And so I, if he ever fell on a race, we'd have to leave right then. We'd all, and so uh, later in life, you know, all those years he was winning races and winning land speed records, he'd give everything away. He got tools and, you know, so here he is trying to get back and run late model. And right. They, so they, he had quit. He had won the national, he won the championship in right. the cup and all that and then just decided one day, that he wasn't going to race anymore. Yeah, yeah. Right. And he took like a couple year break, right? He did. Took a couple years. Well, climbed out of the car. Remember at Talladega, got out of Bud Moore's car. Oh, because he, he heard ghosts or he heard, heard voices, voices or whatever. Right. So I, let I me, think, yeah. Let, let's talk about that. There's a race at Talladega. He's apparently leading the race. That's the tail. And pulls in the garage and gets out. Yeah. Is that true? 
Yeah, he did. He climbed out and he said, you know, he told Bud Moore and those guys that I, I you know, heard voices. I, I think my personal opinion, being around him a lot and as a physician, is that he was having health issues. That he might, really? you know, my, my guess is, and I, it never, I never ask him because he's a very private guy, even though it would just be he and I working on the car. My, my guess was that he probably was having chest pain. Mm-hmm. And he just got out of the car. That's wow. my guess. So he, the, but the old story is, is that you know, since uh, Talladega is built on an old Indian barrel ground, the, the land is cursed, and yeah. he had heard story. He was hearing voices as he's going around the track, and uh, decided to pull off in the middle of the race uh, and quit. And he get, and he did. He got out and never yeah. didn't race again. So he gets back in a late model a couple years later. Yeah, and uh, suffered a heart attack on on the racetrack. Is that right? Right, right. He did. He did. We um, we went to Hickory that afternoon, and uh, I came from medical school and uh, up there, and and I was the only guy he had, just me and him. Really? And I, and, I, and we had no, no, we had a couple of volunteer guys who were going to be there later. Yeah. Uh, but I we kept putting tires on it, and he was he was so loyal to Goodyear, you know, from all the years in Cup racing. But Goodyear wasn't the way to go on short Firestone tracks. Firestone, Firestone was the tires, and the Gene White Company were all there. So, so I'm trying to get him to put the Firestones on, and he won't. So uh, he's not feeling good. And so Butch Lindley's car pulls in, and Mike Beam is the crew chief for Butch Lindley. And Mike comes over and says, "Hey, man, you, you know Isaac? Is that the car you guys built for Isaac?" I said, "Yeah." He said, "You got to go in with those Goodyears on." I said, "I realize that." So I borrow a set of Firestones to put on the car, and I go get Bobby's laying down in, at the car in the infield. Hickory, he comes. He's really a lot faster. And he says, why don't you get in and run some laps? So if I don't, I'm not feeling great, so if I have to pull in, you, maybe you, you drive it. And I said, well, hey, you know, I'd love to, but I'm supposed to work for Ned tonight upstairs. You know, I said, I don't know what I do. I can't let Ned down. He's been so good to me. He said, ah, we'll be all right. So long story short, you know, he practices a little more, and it still doesn't feel good. So then I, I go see him, and some other guys get there. They're going to help out, and I go up and sit in the tower. Ray starts. He's running second or third, 40 laps to go. Starts weaving in the back stretch, slows down. Caution lights come out because someone flipped a caution light up in the tower. Yeah. And uh, he comes down pit road, and they're over at the window net, and um, they talked to him for a minute. He goes back out, green flag again, about two more laps. He gets comes down pit road again. They pull him out of the car. This time they're calling for the ambulance to come up pit road. I tell Ned I got to go. Wow. And so I, I leave. I follow the ambulance to the local hospital, and it was uh, at Catawba Memorial there in Hickory. And uh, the local uh, hospital doctor was a local general practitioner so i'm in my second year of med school but i said i still don't know a lot you know and so we i'm talking with bobby there on the and he he says doc the old car drove so hard tonight and he's got his fire suit off down around his waist it's just me and his wife there and uh and they're going to do some x-rays on him and they hadn't done an ekg nothing yet and then he he collapses in full arrest and they um they call a doctor in as a cardiologist who lives about lives down in Newton. He's on the way to the hospital, and we're doing all the CPR stuff. So here I am. This is my hero. Yeah. And I'm on his chest doing CPR, mm-hmm. and his wife is five feet away crying, and, uh, and he just didn't make it. He just didn't make it. So I, boy, it was a I I I, I, I didn't know what to do, and and I called Ned, who was already home, because uh, by the time we got everything done, it was one o'clock in the morning, and uh, I called Ned. I said, hey. I'm at the hospital, Ned, and Bobby didn't make it. And he said, what? And he said, I'll be right there. And he said, you got to call Pearson. So I called Pearson at home, and his wife said that he's on his way back from running the baby grand race with Larry and, and David, I mean, Larry and, and Ricky, and I'll tell him as soon as he gets home. So, you know, it was just a, a really, really tough, tough one. That sounds like it, man. I didn't know all that. You know, that's so the, is that the first experience that you had where you're, you know, you, this profession of being, you know, a medical doctor crosses 
you know, the life and, and, and the lifestyle of, of being in, involved at the racetrack, this is something that's going to continue to happen to you multiple yeah. times over the course of your career. And I, you know, I was driving over here today and I was thinking about one of the things that I really wanted to ask you. And you were with Rusty at Bristol in 88. You know, people don't know how serious that situation was with Rusty. Right. You know, you saved uh, Don Marmar's life at Atlanta in 1988 at Arca Racer. You were present on pit road when Mike Rich was killed at Atlanta in yeah. 1990. You know, you've you've had all these multiple, you know, occurrences and, and where, you know, your professional life as a physician crosses the path of, of racing and what you grew up around. And I've always kind of wondered how you manage that how do you you know you got these amazing relationships with ned uh, his sons dale and dad and and all, all everybody that you cross paths with right you're building these yeah. friendships and relationships but you also are seeing these people injured and killed um how did you how did you uh, separate the two you know and and you know that the the isaac night changed my life because i went back to med school and didn't and was going to walk away and my one of my professors at, at wait he said no was he said this this should spur you to be the best you can be you should be that guy you should be that trauma guy that cardiac guy uh that is a difference maker that if anybody's really bad you're the guy standing over the bed you're going to give them the best chance to make it and so that prompted me to go be the advanced cardiac life support instructor and the and the the trauma guy I wanted to be. If somebody had something happen, I wanted to be the guy, the best guy they had standing over the bed that could make a difference. And so getting back into racing, the relationships I had with all these people you're talking about, as you all know, a lot of drivers back then they didn't go to doctors. Yeah. They didn't they didn't trust doctors. And if they did go somewhere, they'd give them medicine that and these doctors had no idea what they're doing. And so they'd get on a racetrack and 135 degree cockpit at three hours and they get dehydrated and the medicine creates problems. They get toxic, you know, all kinds. So they'd come to me. They knew it was total confidentiality and uh, which was, a, you know, a blessing and a curse because, you know, a lot, lot. I mean, and but it was uh, and I, I loved it because I it was a it, and I respected them. They knew I was never going to say anything, you know, even though I was a broadcaster. My that was professional confidence. No, nothing went on the air, but it was tough. I mean, I had I had a the points leader one night call see, back before we had motor coaches. They were at the hotel in Wilkesboro, in North Wilkesboro, and he's on the front row and he's the points leader for a cup. And they he calls me at two o'clock in the morning. And he's down the hallway having a heart attack. He thinks. And I run down there, and one of his crew members is already at the door, and we go in. He's balled up on the floor all sweaty, and turns out it wasn't a heart attack. It was a gallbladder attack, and so we get him. I always carried a little bag with me. We get him tuned up, and, and I said, you know, tomorrow morning we're going to see – we're going to see how see how you're doing. I said, you know, my whole deal with these guys is I'll, I'll do everything I can to help you, but I will not let you put yourself or somebody else in jeopardy at the racetrack. If you'll listen to what I tell you, and I'll do my darnest to get you tuned up. I called the helicopter at Winston-Salem Baptist Hospital. It was coming to Wilkesboro. I said, bring this and this and this tomorrow. I want to give this guy some IV fluids in the morning, which we did. Nobody knew about it. And uh, he got in Junior's car and drove the race, you know. <laughs> so we, that happened time and time again, you know. But And, I, you know, and it was just the relationships, you know. Um, people break a rib and needed it to be blocked and the, you know, cause they could drive and, you know, that kind of stuff happened. So yeah. it was, uh, it, it, it was, you sort of, I think that's amazing that you say like, um, you chain, you positioned yourself mentally to where, like, if those guys are going to be in need, you want to be the guy that was there, yeah. Yeah. you know, you want it, you, you having that relationship with them made you want to be there available for them in that in that moment when they needed you the most or needed somebody like you the most. But I have to imagine that some of those situations were so, I mean, you know, racing's a violent sport and some of those situations, I don't know how you could 
put some of that stuff away and go back the next week and keep going, you know, keep doing it. Keep, I don't know. I always were, I always wonder that about you because when I was a kid, I was, you thought you were a doctor at the racetrack, you yeah. know, because people called you Dr. Jerry Potts. Yeah, yeah. And you were often helping people. Yeah, yeah. We're trying. But I know now that you were a broadcaster. Right. You know, and there was another, there you had a doctor. Yeah. You know, and that you, did did that ever become ever? How did you how do you manage that? And what I guess what is the etiquette in the field, where there is a, a medical staff at the track? They are there to provide assistance to anybody who's going to be in any kind of problem. But you know, you're a doctor. You're going to jump into action if you see something and somebody who needs help. So how does that work when when there was an accident at the track and somebody was hurt and you're you're on the scene? How do you work with the team that's already there? and responsible for that event well in the early years nascar is different now it's so much more sophisticated now in the early years they're, they're really at times until race day there wasn't a doctor there it wasn't a doctor there when rusty flipped at bristol there wasn't uh, the doctor they had at atlanta back in the old days in atlanta was just a retired semi-retired uh general practitioner who really wasn't trauma trained that's what i did for a living five yeah. six days a week so when don marmer hit you know, and uh, I end up going up there and being involved with that. I, you know, we're doing the full cardiac, we're doing the full trauma trauma code on him, trying to keep him alive until I can get the helicopter there. I'm on the phone with the helicopter and I'm doing deal. How with are him. you on? How do you have that? So seconds, you know, you have seconds to yeah, make these. Yeah. How are you on the phone? Like, how are you? You are are you going into the event with all that stuff prepared? In? No, 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 no. I'm I'm actually I was actually doing I was doing pit road for the Arca right. race. And I'm down at turn one, uh, where all the leaders are on the pit road, and I know that, and it's not a live race; it's being taped. And we have, I heard a loud crunch out there, and I, and I'm, you know, we're on a red flag, and so I'm walking up pit road, and the arc official says to me, "I said, hey, what bad wreck up there?" And the official said, "Yeah, he's gone." And I said, "What? He's gone? What do you mean he's gone?" And they told me, so I go take off running, and I get up there, and the guys from Atlanta South the ambulance crew, great crew, they're trying to get him out of the car, and the car's, you know, he's pinned in the car, and bad situation, multiple fractures. So I climb in the car with those guys. I still got my fire suit on. I put my microphone in my pocket, and uh, next thing you know, we're doing. I'm putting a line. We put a line in his heart. We're doing all kinds of stuff there, and get him to the care center. Um, the guy, the doctor in there, just says, "Do what you got to do." They don't have a lot of things I need, but I knew I could do this and this and this to try to reduce pressure in the brain. And so then the, we got the ambulance, the helicopter on the way, but they won't come unless he's stable. So I'm sort of fibbed to them on the phone as I'm talking to the driver and we're doing all these things. Uh, I'm telling the helicopter he's sta- he's not. I mean, but if they, that's the only chance he's got is if we get him there, get them there. And I'm and I'm ventilating him, trying to reduce the intracranial pressure so he doesn't. I mean, it's just all these things I'm trying to do in a hurry. And and we stabilize him enough. The helicopter gets there, they fly him out, and you know, and he survives. And I walk back out. And get ready to start the race. And I didn't know this at the time. All the folks in the TV truck were been sitting there for 45 minutes listening through my microphone that was stuck in my pocket. And I come back and say, hey, guys, I'm sorry I'm back. And then I hear all these uh, this cheers erupt, you know, from the TV truck. Like, holy <laughs> cow. I said, well, you know, what are you guys? And they said, we heard everything, you know. Wow. So it was. Uh, have you, did you, have you seen Don? No, no, I haven't. accident? But it was about, gosh, it was about 10 years ago that uh, I got a phone call. Uh, gives me chills to think, but I got a phone call on Christmas Eve, and uh, and it was from his son. And they said, we've been trying for 20 years to get your phone number. <laughs> and he said, we're having family Christmas. My dad's here, and I wanted to call you and tell you if I was a family, thank you. Dad's didn't ever race anymore, but we got him with us, blah, blah, and thank you, Dr. Plain. I mean, that meant more to me, that thank you from that family there up in the Chicago area. So it was pretty cool. That's incredible. I, st- I still don't know how he managed it. 
I mean, like, like you ask, how are you able to manage both? Yeah, and, I and, and I think I've come to the conclusion that it's just a gift, Doc. I, I don't know how you were able to. I know how hard TV is. Yeah. I know how I've heard how hard it is to be a doctor. I can only imagine how you could just switch it on and off and be at the ready. You know, it, it really reminds me, and I don't want to underplay this because you're just such a treasure to the sport. And, and But Thank like that, that beautiful scene in Field of Dreams, which is one of my favorite movies, where Dr. Moonlight Graham is playing, he's, he's doing what he loves, he's got that opportunity, and then it, there's that emergency where he crosses the line and all of a sudden he's a doctor, saves the girl's life. You are a real-time Moonlight Graham is what you are. <laughs> no, really. Yeah. I mean, I... I, I like it's it's an amazing thing. I, I was telling Dale before the show, like I didn't realize. I, everybody knew the Rusty Wallace story, which we can get into that. But I'm like, I didn't realize you saved that many people. Like all the people I that didn't you know were that on Rusty that. was in bad shape that day. Well, you know when he when he t- hit and tumbled and rolled, and uh, we went, I went to the car, and the, you know he wasn't breathing because, uh, and and I'm I'm literally. T- from me to you, when the car comes to rest, I'm standing on pit road talking to Rick Bass. It happened, every, to, it happened right in front of everybody in yeah, the middle of practice. exactly. And it was just him and your dad on the racetrack, and he cuts a tire and balls you and rubs a tire, and he hits the wall. And I look up, and I heard this crunch. I look up, and I see this Pontiac Grand Prix. It looks like a punt, spiraling nose first up. And then it gets in the air, and the wind catches, and it turns sideways and comes down and then barrel rolls four or five times and comes to rest with the, with the front of the car on the pit wall. And I'm literally, from me to Junior, from the car, and I jump over the pit wall, and the roof is pushed down. The window net's buckled down. I can't get the window net off, but I can see Rusty slumped over. He had an open-face helmet. Slumped over in the car and blowing out of both sides of his mouth. And I could see his uniform. He's not breathing. He's not moving. So, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get my hands through the window net just to grab his airway because I figured if he's bleeding into his mouth or whatever, I can at least get his jaw pulled forward to try to get some semblance of an airway. And then next thing I know, I hear someone yelling, it's your dad. He stopped his car right behind Rusty's and jumps out. He's screaming, you know, what can I do? What can I do? I said, you got to get this roof off, Dale. I got to get to him. And so he screams and Dick Beatty jumps across. So it was a NASCAR, you know, uh, director of officials. He jumps across and he says, Doc, you got to back away. We got to cut this roof. I said, I, I can't back away, Dick. I'm holding the airway, but you got to get this roof off. And so Beatty takes his Winston Cup hat and puts it over my face. And he took another hat and put it over my face. And I'm holding him through the window as best I can. And they're sawing this roof so I don't get sparks and stuff in my face and we get to rusty and within the next few minutes it turns out fortunately rusty well knucklehead but rusty had eaten a ham sandwich he had inhaled a ham sandwich right before he got in the car and when he did the tumbles part of that ham sandwich came back up and through his esophagus and blocked his airway so the so the not breathing wasn't trauma related it wasn't head injury related it was it was physically the blockage from the sandwich so the the more having an airway and letting him you know we it sort of resolved itself but we didn't have i didn't know that but we needed to have an airway i knew he was going to be in cardiac arrest within minutes if we didn't get an airway to him so we gave him an ambulance he goes to the hospital gets admitted calls back to the track that night via the tv truck and says hey i'm in the hospital i'm fine tell doc i'm good but he looks terrible because i had soot all over my face and (laughs) paint and but the best part of that whole story was about an hour before the the bush race started that night now the xfinity series your dad comes walking down pit road right down right right to me as i'm getting ready to start the race you know as a pit reporter and he says hey you know said you you probably saved rusty wallace's life today and i'm looking at him like that and he said i don't know he said why would you do that? Why would anybody do that? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, and did he stroke that big mustache? So anyway, that's, we, got, we got lucky that day. Was he unconscious 
that, yeah, through that yeah, whole thing? Yeah. When did he regain consciousness? Right when we, we got him in the ambulance and got him on the backboard and got him, lifted him out through the roof and got him in the ambulance. And I went in the ambulance, was parked right on the straightaway. We got an IV in him and he's starting to, and I was going to, we were going to suction him out and he started breathing a little bit more. The uniform started moving and we were getting ready to intubate him and put a mm. tube in and he didn't have to, he was breathing on his own. So he started coming around in the ambulance and... And were you were y'all broadcasting practice? No, no. Okay, so it you was, weren't working at the time. I wasn't working. I was just doing some homework, talking to actually Rick Mass, one of the Bush Series drivers, and getting ready to run that night. Had you were you ever at the track as a doctor first? I I did physicals. Uh, yeah, Daytona. I worked at I worked the infield care center. That's where I started. When I worked the infield care center, I'd go there and work. Um, I'd work the mornings, uh, and then I'd go do the PA in the afternoon. What uh, year was that? I mean, gosh, I, 80, I mean, 80, 81, 82, early 80s, early okay. 80s. And I would go, and then I, during the during the speed weeks, we initially would do would do driver physicals down there, and so okay. I did a I did a ton of guys that I got to know, Bobby Allison, AJ Ford, all these guys would come in and they'd ask for me because they they'd try to talk me out of doing the exam. And I'd say, guys, you know, I, this has got to be a complete physical. I, I wouldn't be doing you. A, oh yes, you would. I said, no, I wouldn't be doing you a service if I didn't do the complete exam. Yeah. Oh yes, you would. No, anyway. <laughs> Picture this. It's blazing hot outside and you need to head to work. You get into your car and turn on the AC to get the cold air pumping as soon as possible, but it doesn't work. Instead, blowing hot air out of your vents and directly into your face. No, your car doesn't hate you. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the air conditioning system, and there's an easy all-in-one solution that will restore your cold air in no time. There's no need to go to the shop and pay lots of money when you can save time and money recharging yourself with AC Pro Recharge Kits. AC Pro Recharge Kits make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience. And the AC Pro app offers clear, vehicle-specific instructions to help you get the job done in less than 10 minutes. So pick up an AC Pro Recharge Kit at any store selling auto products and confidently restore your car's cold air yourself today. Be a pro with AC Pro. So you mentioned dad and knowing dad even back in the, you know, back in the Hickory days. What was it that started y'all's friendship? We were friends because we, we came from similar kind of backgrounds. My mom and dad worked plants and yeah. hard work and, and, and uh, we, we were chasing a dream, you know. And, uh, but our friendship really took off out of actually almost out of a, out of a fight. Quite, kind quite, of between you two? Between the two of us, yeah. <laughs> it was a situation. It was ugly and it's my, you know. But we were at Dover. I was doing the pit road for it was just just started in TV as a pit reporter. In the final few laps of the race, he has a tire going down, doesn't win the race. You know, he, you know, you know, he was impatient on the racetrack. He was more impatient after the race, getting out of there. Mm-hmm. So they send me because I'm he and our friends. They send me to the garage area at Dover. This is before they had the back gate, and to get to get a quick interview with him, we're in commercial, and he's in the car and he's weaving his way through the garage, and I'm I said they were 30 seconds back, were coming right back to me. He said, "Man, I gotta go, gotta go." You know, and I said, and so our my my camera guy Corky Corcoran, this big old giant, great guy, and he's just standing at the front of the car, and he's easing over in front of the car so Dale can't move, and Dale's bumping him, and Corky's trying to hang on to that big camera, and he's bumping him, and finally we're like ten seconds back. I said, man, I said, hey, just one quick question, you're coming right back to me, and so he bumps Corky real hard and spins and goes whips around Corky and takes off. Well, Corky almost falls back carrying that twenty thousand dollar camera, but it wasn't the camera; it was the fact that he could have broken his back or hurt himself. Mm-hmm. Well, we were hot. And so the next week was Martinsville, and I go straight to Martinsville. I go straight to the three truck, and I walk in. I see David Smith, Will Lance. I said, "Where's your boy?" And he says, "Up in the up in the front." And I said, "Well, you better find RC." I said, "This is, could get ugly." So I went up there and I said some. And Dale's laying down, 
I said some stuff I probably shouldn't have said. But like, what did you say? I said something like, "Man, that's you know." I said, "You're better than that, man. You could have hurt that guy." I said, what, "What's wrong with you?" I said, "We need to have. We need, I said, "You need to kick my ass, or I'm going to kick yours." One, but this is we got to have this out. This is ridiculous. You could have hurt that guy. And he's laying there, so calm down, Doc. I mean, I didn't mean. And Childers comes walking in, and his eyes are big as saucers. And suddenly, and your dad was great. In all honesty, I was probably out of line because I mean, obviously, the sport needed him more than he needed me. So that was probably not a good move on my part to be up there confronting this guy. But I was just angry and upset. And uh, we were friends enough that he sat up on and where he's laying down and looked at me. So man, he apologized, and he said. Uh, you go find Corky. So when you got, I see Corky, I want to apologize to him. And so, I, and so we talked it out a little bit. But from that that confrontation, our friendship and the respect for each other grew immensely. And so literally an hour later, I'm getting ready to do a practice show, and he comes walking over and sees Corky and walks right over to Corky in front of everybody and apologizes. I mean, he didn't have to do that. Yeah. But that's the kind of guy he was. And so from that point on, every time we did a sit-down interview or went anywhere, it was Corky and me. Mm. And and it was when he won the first road course race, climbed out of the car at Sears Point or Sonoma, whatever it is now. He gets out of the car and he takes the steering wheel off and hands it to Corky. Corky's shooting with a camera. He takes one big <laughs> paw and he gives Corky the steering I mean, we went to the Bahamas on the boat and did stuff with him, me and Corky. I mean, it just our relationship got so close. And from that point on, we, we spent a lot of time on the phone at nights and the weekends. He'd call me, we'd chat and just come sit. And, t- and you know, the, the funny part, the interesting part is, and I'll, I'll stop is that when we would talk, we'd sit in the pickup truck and talk, or, or he'd call me at a house at night, we never talked about racing. It was yeah. not about racing. Everything well, but racing. Well, like, what would he call to talk to you about? I mean, you don't have to get into specifics, but I'm just curious. I mean, like, what would, would he ask you, like, medical-related stuff? Uh, occasionally. Occasionally. I think later in life, we, we he would ask medical stuff. And, you know, he asked me, you know, and a lot of it was about family because we had similar backgrounds. I'd been married before and had kids and was chasing a career and, and uh, crew chief changes. I mean, he'd talk about, you know, he, literally he'd call the house. My wife, Joni, would answer. And he'd, I'd be in the, if it was a weekend, I wasn't doing a, a race. I'm doing a football game. I'd be in my office going through a media guide. And she'd say, it's Dale. And I'd put the phone up there. And he'd say, hey, man, we, we're going to make a crew chief change, you know, at the three car, blah, blah, blah. He said, this is going to be a good change. And so and so. And he started. And I'd just be doing notes. And she'd come back a half hour later. He'd still be talking. You know, people, <laughs> he wasn't known for being, you know, but but with friends and around, you know, he would. Uh, but, uh, he asked me one time, uh, he, a lot of medical stuff. I mean, he, I never asked him for anything, not a dime, not a penny, not an autograph, not a hat, nothing. Our relationship was just friendships. And he kept asking one time, he said, why don't you ever ask for something? And I said, I don't need anything. I don't want anything. You got a lot of friends who want stuff. I don't, I'm not one of those. And he said, and he said, I said, you don't ask me for anything. I said, I do ask you for medical stuff all the time. And we, we talk and he asked me about LASIK surgery. Remember, I'll never forget this. He asked me about doing LASIK surgery <laughs> and he said in 1992, two or three or whatever it was. He said, hey, man, tell me about that LASIK surgery. I said, well, it's a great way to be able to see. I said, he said, you look into it for me. And I said, is that the deal? Is that why you run over people because you can't see? I said, is that the deal? And he said, no, I run over people because they won't get out of my way. And I said, well, okay. So I go, and I actually went in Charlotte and uh, got a guy that was doing LASIK surgery and uh, he went and had my surgery. I had it done myself. And then I had about four or five drivers that, you know, I won't mention names because it wouldn't be fair, but that referred to LASIK. He didn't, you know. And I said, well, so that's a deal. You want me to find out about it? He said, well, yeah, you, you go ahead and do it. And I said, yeah, right. I'm gonna, but I did it anyway, and it was great. And uh, But stuff like that. We, we were, he, was, he was cool. Uh, in my notes here, when your wife was pregnant, you were broadcasting a football game. What, what was the deal there? Yeah, I, was, uh, I know your dad wasn't a big football fan, college football fan, but he, it was Thanksgiving night. I'm in College Station, Texas, where Texas World Speedway mm-hmm. used to be. It's Texas and Texas A&M, big, big game on Thanksgiving night. I'm doing it on ESPN. He must have walked in somewhere, you know, some family function or whatever, and saw me on the television. 
And so he calls my wife, Joni, and says, she was up in the mountains. We had a house in Blowing Rock. And he calls and says, hey, I just saw Doc doing a football game in Texas. Did he take the four-wheel drive and go to the airport? Because we live in Blowing Rock. And I said, I had to go to Johnson City to fly out. And uh, she said, he said, it's snowing sideways up there, Joni. He said, you get, said, you're getting ready to have that young, and you need somebody up there if you go. And I, she said, Dale, I'm fine. I'm like, I'm only seven months pregnant. I'll be fine. <laughs> I, you know, and he said, not snow, snowing up there. And uh, I'm going to send one of my guys up there on a four-wheel drive and going to stay in the basement until the doc gets back. And so uh, she kept telling him, no, 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 you know. He called her back 10 minutes later and tried to talk her into it. She said, no, I'll be fine. So he, she ended up telling him not to. And here's the irony of that. Last January, this past January, my daughter, who, was, who my wife was pregnant with right then, my daughter Jessie and I were at the NASCAR Hall of Fame and dinner, induction dinner. And we, we walk out, and, and one of your dad's longtime crew members walks over to me and says, Doc, I don't know if you remember that story, but years and years ago when Dale was going to send somebody up, it was me. Mm. He had already called me and said, you're taking the four-wheel drive up to Blowing Rock to stay with Doc's wife. He said, that was me. He said, is this the little girl your, your daughter, your wife was going to have? I said, yeah, this is Jessie. And he said, and so she, Jessie had heard the story, and she got all emotional, saying, holy cow, that, mm. how special is that? Yeah, that's pretty crazy. That's amazing. Wow. So um, Dad had some pretty significant injuries uh, in his career. Bro, uh, Talladega broke his sternum. He called you when he had that injury. Yeah. What was he calling you for? He called me. He It was, it was a CBS race, so I wasn't there, and uh, I didn't see the race because they went off the air for some kind of, some kind of deal with a uh, technical problem. But he gets home, and he calls me and says, hey, you know, I got hurt. I said, yeah. He said, what are you doing tomorrow? I said, probably looking at you, I guess. You know, because I was, I, had, I ran the ER, so I, had, I said, I'll change the schedule. He said, well, how about you getting me in to see Terry Trammell up in Indianapolis? I said, let's go. And so I, I went with him. We got on the plane, went, to, went up to see Trammell. And I could, t- you know, tell he was hurt. He broke his, he broke his collarbone here, or the left collarbone, right? right next to the breastbone the sternum is the in the breastbone yeah. and he and we got x-rays up there and the sternum is overlapped about an inch so, so there's a sharp overlap where it's broken here in the middle and the collarbone's broken so trammel does the x-rays and dale's sitting there and Teresa's sitting there and trammel looks at me and he says hey you need to tell this guy what the deal is here if he hits something with this broken like that first of all you can't take a deep breath you can't move your left arm so he said dale this is going to take time to heal and Dale looked at Terry Trammell and said, that's okay. This was Tuesday morning. He said, I'm going to have to be in the car till Friday, <laughs> you know, it's for the brickyard. Yeah. So uh, then we, so then I, you know, he, Adam, he's going to try to drive the car to the brickyard. So I'm working to try to find a way to, can't give him medicine, can't give him pain medicine in the car. So I'm trying to find a way to control the pain, even though it's unstable and he can't breathe, can't shave, can't do anything with his left arm. So I, I call, I got a buddy of mine at the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and sent me a, a TENS unit, a transcutaneous nerve. Mm-hmm. It looked like a small heating pad that I put over the fracture site and I could tur- dial it up. So I get to Indianapolis early and I go in a bus and I put it on. I'm dialing it up and his muscles are all doing oh, yeah. this, you know. And so uh, he said, I said, you feel the pain? I don't feel it. They said, but it's, it's, it's like a bus. I said, I said that, we're going to kind of control it. So he, he goes over. I'm getting ready to go do an ESPN practice show. So I go get my gear on. And I said, I'll come over to the car in a minute. So I go over there, and, and he's in the car. He finally was able to get in the car, but nobody wants to put the belts on him. And so David Smith, Will and those guys, he said, you got to put the belts on him. So he's sitting there. <laughs> so I reached down in the car. I said, you ready for this? And so I put my hand on the, on the clavicle, and I said, I'm going to push. You're going to hear this loud click, which is where the bones are going back together. And I'm going to grab that shoulder strap, and I'm going to tug it real hard. And I did it. And he went, ugh, like that. you know. And I said, you all right? I said, don't hit anything like that. And he said, all right, I got that. So. Anyway, long story short, we all know how he had to get out of the car there. Uh, but did, yeah, this the actually makes me wonder: Did you really want him in that car no, to begin no, with? No, but I mean, it wasn't my wasn't my. Call. I know, I know, it wasn't your call. But did you ever try to tell him? Did you ever make him want to consider getting out of the car? 
Well, from a medical professional advice and friend advice. You know, I knew he was hurt. He, he would listen. Uh, you know, the good thing about Dale is, it, is, is he asked me a question. I'd tell him things he didn't want to hear at times. Yeah. And everybody else would tell him things he wanted to hear. And that's and that was probably a part of our respect factor we had. That thing about getting out of the car, that was a week later. You know, he got out of the car at Watkins at, uh, at, at Indianapolis. At, at the Brickyard, Brickyard. Right. He was so emotional. Emotional. You saw the interview, and he said, that's my life. It's what I do. And, you know, he'd always he'd always said, you know, he, he would always tell me stuff his daddy said, you know, that Ralph said. And um, we'd share that off and on. And that, that's a whole different story. But some of those things were really cool. He'd share some of those things that he heard from his dad with other drivers that would come talk to him. But anyway, he gets out of the car at the Brickyard. Well, the next week we're at Watkins Glen, and I get a page to go to the NASCAR hauler, and it's, uh, I think it's David Smith or Will Lynn or somebody there, and they said, you need to go to Earnhardt's bus right away. And this is like an hour and a half before qualifying. And I'm thinking, oh, he's falling down, and mm-hmm. it's, he's worse. You know? so I go running down there. I walk in. There's Teresa sitting there and Richard Childress and Dale. And, uh, and I walk in and realize they're in a serious conversation. So what's going on is Richard's trying to talk Dale out of, out of driving a car. He said, Dale, and I walk in, and he said, Dale, man, it's a road course. you got to turn left and right. you got one arm. you got to shift 12 or 13 times. There's no way. There's just no way. And, and he says, he said, Doc will tell you. So I walk in. When he says, Doc will tell you. <laughs> so i I got to be upstairs to host qualifying on ESPN with Ned and Benny and these guys. And so I only got like 20 minutes. And so I'm sitting there, and I said, look, Dale, you understand what the, I said, you know, the pain, it's not just the pain. You can, I know you can handle the pain, but if you hit something – like Dr. Trammell told you, with this thing, with this clavicle broken, the sternum broken, it, it goes through your your lungs and your heart, and it's over. And it's not a you're not a, you're not badly hurt. It's over. And then Richard says, Dale, I I just don't think you can do it. And Dale is just stops and looks right at Richard. Says right, at Richard says, Okay, he says, if you tell me, Richard, that being in your car, I'm going to hurt your car, hurt your team, hurt your effort. I'm then if you tell me I'm 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 going to be that bad for you, I'll get out. And I'll never forget, Richard Childress looked him right back in the eyes. He said, how am I going to tell Dale Earnhardt that being in my race car is going to hurt my racing? He said, hell, with one arm, you're better than 99% of the people in that garage area anyway. And Dale said, okay, it's done. It's done. <laughs> I'm, I'm driving. So we, we, I leave and run up in the tower, and I walk in, you know, and I'm getting my headset on. And Ned says to me, where you been? I said, well, they had a little discussion. They were trying to talk Dale out of driving the car. And he said, how'd that go? I said, not well. And so he's one of the last cars to qualify. He goes out to qualify, and I'm calling the qualifying lap. I'm already emotional. I'm scared to death for the guy. And he goes out and sets a new track <laughs> record and puts it on the pole. You know, that's that hurt so good, the T-shirt. The T-shirt. They made, they, they, you know, it, it hurt so good. And one-armed, one because see what happened was they doubted him. They doubted him. Richard had, had, and those guys are saying, you can't do it. You can't do it. And he went out there, one arm, shifting. He couldn't use his left arm. He was literally using his legs against the steering wheel. You know, and holding it and turning it in the corner, late apex, and probably is what made him so fast because he had to wait to get back to the steering wheel to turn it. But anyway, he sits on the pole. And I mean, I could hardly, if you listen to the broadcast, I can hardly talk. I said, not only is he on the pole, but it's a brand new track record that had been sitting for four or five years. Nobody had touched it. And he put, I mean, just so cool. Yeah. So he, he and Dale Jarrett were on the front row for that race. <laughs> I think he ended up running second in the race. I think he did. Yeah. Is it true that he would prop his arm up? Because of that injury, like, would he do something like that? Because I remember of a Mark Martin story, and I can get to the Mark Martin story in a second, but, like, did he do something with his arm to help alleviate the pain when he would drive? You know, I, 
I don't know because actually the, the collarbone was a left on the left. It was on the left, on the left side. So I don't know. I, you know, a lot of guys would do that. A lot of those guys, <clears throat> I told you those guys back in the days that had medical. A lot of those guys had had neck problems, uh, the Kales and the Neds and the Pearsons and those guys, and they would move their body around because they could back then because the seats were just you know. Uh, but I don't remember him propping his. Uh, did you, so that's one of the things I've been thinking about here in the last minute or two is the neck. So Daddy broke his neck at Michigan, mid nineties. Yeah. Um, we had Larry Mack on the show a couple weeks ago, and Larry was talking about how Dad didn't manage that injury or didn't get the get, didn't get the work done he needed to to yeah. get that fixed. You you're aware? Did he ever call you during that episode? Because this is like a two, three four year yeah. period where he broke his neck, didn't tell anybody. Finally, like four years later, gets the operation or the work done in there to get it fixed and he couldn't even really get his car dialed in because he couldn't feel his car couldn't drive his car right <laughs> but did he ever call you during any of that going yeah. man i don't know what to do or what's yeah. going on or he called me you know and i you know he had doctors you know that he see but i did his physical every year in fact i you know, still got his physicals that i in my drawer at home that i did and and for lots of reasons, anyway. But yeah, we we talked about that. And when he had his neck surgery, he did have his neck surgery. Yep. Didn't want anybody to see him. We're having to wear that little collar for a while. But uh, yeah, we talked. And if people ask me about your dad. I'll tell you, I, one of my favorite stories was after he had that surgery. And I don't know if you ever heard it, but there was a little boy in the mountains who was uh, like a Make a Wish kid, and he was uh, had a terminal illness. And he's his dad's a farmer, and they. His dad asked him, "What can I do, son?" And the little boy said, "I'd really like to meet Dale Earnhardt." And they knew time was of the essence, and there dad said i can't make that happen there was a minister in the room who said let's see what we can do and he calls another pastor that relays down the mountain that's where i'm from was from an area i'd been up there before so this preacher calls me and i call over to dale and say hey this kid i don't know what his situation is how much long he said dale so i can't go anywhere i can't drive i can't be in a car until this heals and no i don't want anybody to see me with this collar on and i need some time i said well i don't know how much time we got so he agrees he said if you can get this kid down here i'll i'll meet him and we'll, we'll make it happen and so they load that boy with a respiratory therapist and a doctor in the in the mountains, and they drive him down early one morning in a private parking lot at about daybreak, and Dale goes over there, and, and they get that boy out in his chair with his respiratory assist and his dad and his family, and Dale kneels down <clears throat> beside him with that collar on. I get emotional thinking about it, and they take a picture together. And to my knowledge, that's probably the only picture he ever allowed anybody to take with him wearing that collar after his surgery. But that's just the kind of kind of guy he was. I mean, he wasn't gonna he wasn't gonna make that kid wait. He couldn't go to him, but if that kid got down where he could make it happen, he was gonna make that make that wish come true. Yeah, pretty cool. I can't imagine. I, I can't recall ever seeing a picture of him with the, one of those yeah. neck braces. Those things aren't very graceful. I mean, they, no. they're, they're they're not very dignified. Yeah. <laughs> they, they, and, and it may, you know, and he's he's you know he, you know he didn't want anybody to see think he was vulnerable about anything. You know, and right? It, it there was, was just a situation. Well, there was an entire brand built around that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Exactly. What happened at um, 1998, my post-race championship party in Key Largo, karaoke, Tony Jr.? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I called the race. You you know, your dad was in the booth with me. How um, was that? Because I've seen some of that recently oh over, my on, gosh. on social media. Dad being in the booth. You know, I don't have – he never would tell me. We never sat down and had these long conversations about – yeah, this was great. I've really enjoyed, yeah. you know, watching you. And but I know that y'all probably, y'all, I know the inter, the interviews about as much as I got, you know. Yeah. So if I can well, watch that I, interview I'll tell over you, again. I'll tell you a little more about the back part of that part you didn't see. Yeah. And that is that um, you know, well, he loved you so much. He was so proud um, of all of his kids. And uh, I asked him about doing some TV. 
and he said, man, I don't want to get in a booth with two TV. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't want somebody asking me questions and I'm, I'm going to be me. I'm going to give him an, I said, well, no, he said, well, you, somebody I trust and respect. He said, he said, we'll do it. And then when it came time to you, I said, look, you know, Junior's going to win this championship. He's just going to start the car and win the championship. I said, why don't you come in with us? So we built this whole open. Our producer, Jill Fredrickson, who now works, still, still works at ESPN. She works in Sports Center on that side. We built this incredible open to the uh, John Mellencamp song, Teach Your Children to Tell the Truth. Now's your time. Your time is now. Your time is now. With all these faded pictures of him and you fading in and out. And so I, we came on the air with a shot of the palm trees. And I said, under, you know, in the shadows of the palm trees here in South Florida that today, another sun is set to shine. And then the music started playing. Well, so we, what the problem was is that before we went on the air, about five minutes before we went on the air, he kept saying, I want to see that. I want to see that. Well, the producer, <laughs> producer showed him the open, Yeah. showed him the music. And when he saw that, he got misty-eyed. He got wow. emotional. And I'm, I'm mixed emotions. I'm glad he saw it because he wouldn't have wanted to do that. But he was so, I mean, it was just, and then... And then so he was prepared for it. We went on the air, he was prepared for it, and I asked him, I said, hey, you know what, we've seen, we've seen your passion as a racer, but now we see your, your pride as a father. He said, I'm a proud papa too. You know, and he was just gushing, just gushing about the fact how special it was for him. You know, and we talked about it. all those years winning championships and having car, being a car owner, winning time, but nothing compared to having your flesh and blood become a champion. He said, uh, he said that's just, he said, I, that's just so cool. So anyway, we go to the party that night. You guys have a big party. He invites, you know, our, our producer and a couple of us to party. And you and, I guess, Tony, the Uri, the Uri family, and everybody's, you know, having a good time. So he, he's getting ready to leave. He walks over to, says to me, he said, I'm, we're out of here. Grabs Teresa, we're out of here. We're going. He said, you're in charge. I said, oh, no way. I, I'm not responsible for what's going to happen next year. I said, there's no way. He said, well, you're, he said, you got good, he said, you're my friend, you're my buddy, you got good common sense, and you're a doctor. I said, I said, <laughs> I said they're going to need all of that, but I'm not the guy. I said, so anyway, a couple hours later, that, that what might have happened, I'm not sure if it really happened or not, is several of us, several of us, including our producer, and some people in this room might have been on a stage in a tiki hut singing karaoke. Uh, we we had a, we had a great time. I, yeah. I also learned that Tony Uri Jr. cannot sing a lick. Uh, <laughs> I, I could have looked at him and told but, you that. But, but you know, he, he is no friend. <laughs> but anyway, we had fun. we had a good time. It's a lot of fun. Do you remember this? Uh, I mean, you know, <laughs> Key Largo. Yeah, championship. Yeah. championship. It's foggy. Yeah. 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 Do you remember winning a championship <laughs> at that point? <laughs> My gosh, man, that would have been good. Oh, you worked on Days of Thunder, or well, yeah. you know, you you were everybody kind of did. But what was your uh, involvement? That that uh, they just did this uh, pretty cool little documentary yeah. on that on that uh, on the making of Days of Thunder a couple weeks ago around the Daytona 500. But um, Tom Cruise shadowed you for a day, yeah, at Watkins Glen, and apparently you had a, you had a role in in uh, <laughs> casting Nicole Kidman for her her part yeah. of the movie. Yeah, well, Cru- Cruise and Robert Town they. They brought him in, unbeknownst to me, uh, at in the in the dark on the morning race day at Watkins Glen, and said these guys are going to walk around in the, in the TV conference. No one knows they're here. They both have ball caps on and torn T-shirts and dirty jeans, and you're just going to think they're utilities. Going to walk around. So Cruz was carrying a backpack with water bottles for me and batteries, which is I always say he was my assistant. And then <laughs> and then Robert Town, the award-winning screenwriter, was there with us too. And and he wanted to. And everywhere I, everywhere I went that morning in the garage area, they had a microphone clipped to the bill of their of their baseball cap 
with a wire running down to a tape recorder. So if I'd go talk to your dad or Rusty or Bill Elliott, they wanted to hear the dialect, the, the, how, how people talk to each other, how they wow. picked on each other. They wanted yeah. to hear all that because they wanted to know this is how these guys talk. Yeah. And then when I went out to do the pre-race interviews, they were right there with me. So no one was any the wiser who they were. And then about halfway through the race, typically at Watkins Glen, it gets hot, gets warmer, and there's a day warm. So Cruz pulls his sunglasses and his hat off, is wiping his face, and our other handheld camera guy, like, you know, two pits away, realizes that's Tom Cruise. So he spins the camera around and shoots Tom Cruise. It's in a, up on the Jumbo Tom, Tom Cruise, and, and he, he looks at me and says, I said, he said, I know you got to go. No problem. Well, in that week, Robert Town starts calling me. He'd call me in the ER in Florida, and we'd talk about every night when I get home from the hospital. And he's talking about casting uh, a female neurosurgical resident. He said, we want, we want a female neurosurgical resident. And, um, and he said, um, what do you think about Kim Basinger? I said, well, she's too voluptuous. And I said, she you know, wouldn't come across as a... He <laughs> asked you this? Yeah, yeah. And I said, I, said, I said, well, let me tell you what. I said, a, a female resident, neurosurgical resident, is going to be, they're, they're going to be pale, complected, pasty, because they never get out in the sun. They're always in the hospital 24-7. Probably stringy hair, very intelligent looking. So he calls me the next night and says, hey, we got this. We got a perfect possible choice. He said, he said how about going and written this movie? I think it's called The Deep or something like that. He said, there's a Nicole Kidman in this movie. He said, here's the best part. She went to UCLA as a pre-med major. She's from Australia. She's tall, pale, pasty, complected, stringy sort of hair. Uh, she comes across really intelligent with that accent. He said, and so I went and got the movie and looked at it, and I said, perfect. So, I mean, not that I was, but he's yeah. asking my opinion, so that's how, sort of how it went. There's a lot of storyline built around injury head injury yeah. medical the drivers in the hospital and all that did they like ever talk to you about is this how this would be how would this part get handled what would happen here yeah yeah we you know we we uh a lot because i i spent time at night with robert town when he was there sort of helping write different scenes and uh -huh. he would ask me because and and uh <clears throat> really yeah and so he actually I would go down to his hotel in Daytona, and then they'd fly me. They'd say, what time can you leave the ER? we got a plane waiting for you. And I'd fly to Darlington to shoot a scene and come back to the ER. Uh, but we, we rented a, a whole hospital that had been closed. Daytona Beach General had been closed, but it still had the scanner in, the, in there. So they said, we're going to shoot the scanning part with, with crews laying on the scanner. So I'm, I'm working an hour north of there, and they're calling me and saying, okay, we're here at the hospital. When can you get here? I said, well, you guys just shoot your scenes. i got to work. You know, i got an ER to run. They said, well, we'll wait on you. So I come flying down there about 4 o'clock in my scrubs, and my, I walk <laughs> in, and Cruz's laying, they got him laying on the CT scanner on the table smoking a cigar, you know, just talking. And I said, no, 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 no. I said, you know, dim the lights, get rid of the cigar, strap him <laughs> on the table. And I said, and right. I go back here, I'm back there with Nicole Kidman and, and Robert Duvall. And I said, no. And so Robert Town is there and Jerry Bruckheimer. And he said, well, I said, here, I said, it's going to be really quiet. And I said, the only voice he's going to hear is yours talking to him about take a deep breath and hold it. And he can say something. And Robert Town came up with, well, and when I'm in the car, I, I hear voices. It's a crew chief, you know, in my head. And I hear him and I had that trust factor. And I said, she said, now, what, what do I, Nicole said, what do I need to know? Dr. Lewicki, I said, well, you need to ask the crew chief, what did the helmet look like? Was it cracked front and back? The mechanism yeah. of injury is I'm really like, important. I remember, like, as yeah. you're talking about this, yeah. I remember all this in the, in the movie. Yeah. Absolutely. So I'm standing as far as from us, you know, Mike, I'm standing this far away from where they're shooting in my scrubs, and I'm saying, okay, you're going to ask him so-and-so, because Robert Town's writing it, and they're just in it. So I was involved in a lot of those scenes as a consultant. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Did yeah. you show them how to draft with the sugar packets? Uh, oh, my I, gosh. I, I, I volunteered, but I was turned down. Uh, <laughs> did you show yeah. how it, Wow. Do you still can you just do your lines like the, the I, I mean, because the line you give in the interview with Robert Duvall, right? 
Yeah. Uh, about the tires. Yeah. What's yeah. special about them? You know, we actually were shooting that scene, and Robert Robert Town had gone back to Hollywood, to Paramount, to do some stuff. They were trying to get this thing done, and we're in Daytona shooting that Victory Lane scene, and I go over to interview Cruz, and you can see in my in my eyes, you know, the, the line I'm using to inter- to ask him a question is not something I would ever ask, and so he just stops. And they're they're like panicking. He said he said, "What's wrong, Doc?" I said, "This I would never ask a driver this in Victory Lane." I said, "This is I said you don't want it to be hokey." And we changed some stuff around. And he said, "What would you ask?" And I said, "What I would ask." And then that's how the you know then with Robert Duvall there, he's sounded like someone's got some explaining to do. That that's how that that was all ad lib. And Cruz said, "We're going with ad lib." And of course, if he said we're going with it, we're going with it. Yeah. So so you ad lib that line. Yeah yeah. Like and it, it sounds like that, yeah. It sounds, it sounds like, like Harry Hogg has to, or. Some, yeah, it got some explaining to do, and that was not in the script. And I just, as I'm walking away, I thought they'd cut all that out, but they didn't. They kept it in. So my goodness, I didn't know any of this. No, how could you? <laughs> wow. <laughs> I got a couple of IROC questions. Okay, Victory Lane, 2000, Daytona. Dad, uh, when he saw Bill France Jr. Yeah, you know, Bill France and your dad had this incredible mutual respect. And remember, in 2000 is when Bill France was diagnosed with cancer. And he turned over running NASCAR and made Mike Hilton president. So he was battling some pretty serious illnesses. We're at Daytona. It's Friday, I rock race. Not, you know, Victory Lane's not going to be crowded. Dale's dominating the race. And I, I run the Victory Lane about a, a nap or two before it's over. And uh, I see a car coming through the infield. And uh, it's somebody driving. And they, they pull up right behind me. And it's Bill France Jr. Is, is being driven over there. He gets out and sort of unsteady and sort of weak. Gets up in the stands of those bleachers that are right behind Victory Lane. And I, and I run up there to see him and say, hello, hey, Doc, how you doing? I said, what are you doing here? He said, I, I needed to see this. Okay, Mr. France. I said, great. Good good to see you. Gave him a little cat, you know, easy hug. And I went back down. And Dale pulls in, went in the IROC race. And, you know, he's in there getting the steering wheel off. And I put my head in the window because we're not live. We're, it's being taped for ABC. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, I said, hey, man, I said, you got a you got a spectator here that came to see you, and he's and I point up in the windshield. He looks like that, and he sees Billy sitting up there, and he jumps out and runs right up there and gives him a big hug because I'm just special. Because Bill France, you know, battling cancer, all the things he was up against, but and when he was over in his office and realized that Dale was going to win that race, that I Rock race, he wanted to be there one more time. Mm-hmm. And so, I, I I you know Dale goes up and we come down and do victory lane, but I don't think anybody was the wiser or what that you know because about how special that was. There, I guess. To prove, I don't know whether it was to prove his his friendship with Bill Jr. or whatever, but he dropped, he called him up on the phone in the middle of an interview between you and Dad. Yeah, yeah, we we uh, when I, we did a special um, for called out for outside the lines, and we were down actually. I had, Corky and I had flown down uh, on your dad's plane to interview Bill Jr. in Daytona. We did the interview, Captain Jack, uh, Bill Jr. <laughs> And Captain, uh, Jack, yeah. Captain Jack. So Captain Jack. We're, 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 uh, we did the interview, and then we're leaving there on, on, the, on your dad's plane. We're going down to the, the key, Chubb K. So we're, we're going down there. <clears throat> we land, and uh, we get on the boat, and we're, out, we're going out across. And uh, your dad's, we're up on the flybridge of the boat, and your dad said, what did Billy say? I said, he said you were a knucklehead like that. And he said, no, 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 what did Billy say about me? Because we just came from talking to Mr. France. And I said, well, he basically said you, he reaches over and grabs a phone. <clears throat> on the boat there and I wasn't paying a lot of attention he picks it up and you know he's pretending to talk to Captain Jack on the phone and we're just up there t- you know and I said okay I'll go along with this right we're out in the middle of the Bahamas somewhere and we're shooting this and he says okay yeah doc says you said I was a knucklehead blah 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 and we're, he's laughing <clears throat> and he says doc and he said here talk talk to talk to Billy and I said okay I'll go along with it 
hello, and it's Bill France Jr. <laughs> on the phone. And he just it's like it's like that 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 red phone they used yeah, the to, to go phone. from the bat phone to go from Moscow to Washington. So he picked it up. Yeah, that, that relationship was pretty doggone special. Oh, Larry Mack told a hilarious story during the '98 Daytona 500. Like they got 11 or 12 laps to the finish. Like yeah. it's it's crunch time, and and on the radio during caution, he hears uh, Sunday money. This is Captain Jack. Go catch a big one today or something, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> something yeah. like that. We're He'll like, get you one today. Yeah. 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 Larry Mack said he was about to. What did he say? I was about to have me a come apart. <laughs> <laughs> I think RC went and grabbed him just in time. Yeah. Because his days with NASCAR would not have included tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That was. Yeah. Back to Iraq, 2001, Daytona. You witnessed the incident between Eddie Cheever and Dad. Yeah, now I'm yeah. talking, I guess, the one <clears throat> off the racetrack, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. so uh, to. They're coming down to the finish, and Dad's leading, or t- no, Dad's trying to pass Eddie Cheever, and Cheever blocked him down in the apron and drove Dad, you know, d- drove Dad across the apron into turn one. Big save. Oh yeah. But uh, sent Dad down into the infield, uh, blocking him pretty hard. They finished the race, coming around under pace lap. I think Dad spun Cheever out off turn two after yeah. the race. Right. And then they got together in the garage. What happened there? Well, I mean, I'm in victory lane interviewing Dale Jarrett, but nobody's watching that because the crowd erupts when they see your dad spin Cheever on a backstretch. And they come down pit road to our producer. I'm the only pit reporter. And he says, get up pit road. And I run up there and your dad waited for Cheever to spin and get back, you know, in the gas and head back to pit road. He wanted to follow him down pit road. So <laughs> I get up there and the, and the, and the speedway cops and officials have keeping all the fans, everybody back because they're on pit road. Well, I'm coming up pit road with the camera and I, and I get there just as Dale gets to the window and Cheever window. And Dale looks at him and says, get out of the car. He never hit a man in the car. Get out of the car. Cheever says, uh, well, man, I, Dale, I, I, he said, get out of the car. I said, I've never hit a man in a car. Get out of the car. <laughs> like that. And, and Cheever's like, pay it white as a ghost. So, so we, we, we back, I back the camera just a little bit so we can give him some, a little bit of room. And, uh, and, and Cheever gets out. And Dale and, and the crowd, the cr- and they start walking toward the front of the car. And Dale reaches over and puts his arm around Cheever's neck, sort of like that, you know, mini uh, and, and headlock. And he and he's pulled him down. And he's talking to him. And he basically what he says to him, hey, man, you know better than that. Mm-hmm. And Cheever just thinks, Cheever told me, I said, I think I'm going to get an ass kicking right there. Mm-hmm. I'm in his sandbox with Cheever's quote. I'm in your sandbox and I did something stupid and I'm going to get an ass kicking. And, and what, what Dale did was he put his arm around him and said, man, said, man, you know better than that. You could have hurt somebody, hurt you, me, a lot of people out there doing something like that. He said, man, you're an Indy 500 champion. You're an Indy 500 champion. Man, I respect that. We, you understand when you made a mistake? You, and Cheever said, I, I, I'm so sorry. I, I know I made a mistake. It ain't going to ever happen again. And Dale said, okay, we're cool. And I respect you. You're an Indy 500 champion, man. That's something. That means something. <laughs> and, I, and, and then he walked away. And from that, and I've done – a number of races in Indy over the years with Eddie Cheever on our on our crew broadcast crew, and from that day on, it nobody nobody respected your dad more than Eddie Cheever. Mm. He said he showed me what a what a cool guy he was. He could have punched me, throw me. He didn't do any of that. He just yeah. he, he said because I was that shows how much respect he had for somebody who goes and wins the Indy five hundred. Yeah. One cool thing that me and you got to do together, I forget what year it was, the Olympic torch. Yeah, yeah. You remember that? Two thousand one. Two thousand one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Boy, it meant a lot to me. I I have that. I have that torch. On I do too. Right, right beside my wall. Right beside. They let me. us have. Let us keep a torch. Our torches. Yeah. Would, this would have been what, like Salt Lake City or something? No, it was it was Charlotte. Charlotte. Char- Charlotte. Torch no, no, came no, through know, Charlotte. No, no, I know the torch would have come through here, but yeah, I'm talking I think about the Olympics. Yeah, Olympics. Salt Lake City Olympics. Yeah. Okay. They were sponsored by sponsored by Chevrolet and Coca Cola. So back then, so <clears throat> the. Uh, 
your dad was supposed to run the torch. It was going to be, you know, Teresa and then Dale Jr. and then Dale. As the torch flew, flown from Greece into Atlanta, and they ran it from Atlanta to Charlotte, the last three people to run into Charlotte and light that little cauldron thing in downtown Charlotte was going to be these the family. So, obviously, Dale Sr. was gone. So, you know, uh, it's uh, I got a call from um, over at the office, and they said, hey, they asked Teresa or somebody, said, hey, you know, have somebody stand in for Dale that it would mean a lot to, and they called me. And I I literally was, I couldn't believe it that I was, so we get on a bus. They put us on a, you and we're me. We're all on a bus dressed in our in jogging our Olympic, pants. Yeah. I, st- I still have yeah. clothes. <laughs> I remember that picture now. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> I, yeah. Mine might be a little small now. It might look like a look like a biscuit. So I'm trying to sneak out of a can, but if I put it on today, <laughs> but but it, it would. Uh, uh, but it, we we got on that bus, you and me and Teresa and uh, Taylor, and and uh, they took us out of town, and and uh, and the torch comes up, and I, and uh, we and it turns out I I get off first, and I and I run the torch like a sixth of a mile, and then I light Dale Dale Junior's torch. I, my family actually has that on on a, on a, on a video. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Of me lighting your torch. So nervous, weren't you nervous? Oh, oh yeah, yeah. And there's, I and believe it. There's, pe- there's people lining the streets. There's, I mean, Watching. it's the Olympics. Oh, right? sure, and tons if, of people. If you trip or fall, you're on Sports Center that night. Yeah. You're just, leaving. And, and, <laughs> you, and what happens if you put the torch the out? Torch it came out. Away from oh yeah, you just can't That's go like, get another one tomorrow. You know? <laughs> I never thought about tripping or falling. I was more oh, yeah. worried about the light. Yeah, yeah. this eternal flame that you're yeah. in possession yeah. of. Yeah, right? so, my bad. You can't say my bad and then go back to Greece and get another one. That's why I don't run fast. So in case you know. <laughs> and he lit. He lit Teresa, and she walked up and uh, and lit the cauldron. People were nuts, but that was that was that was cool. Yeah, that I, that torch sits right beside me in my office, and in the picture of where's uh, yours? Mine was here. I think it's at home. Man, that's a studio man, piece, man. Spot. He's Jeez. talking about his torch. I'm like, where is this thing in here? We, we, should we have got the Charlotte PA announcer on the wall, <laughs> but we don't have an Olympic torch. We should have it in here. I've got it. <laughs> Yeah, that was fun. As you can see, Doc, we went and raided Dell Junior's house to yeah. to decorate yeah, our studio. This there, is awesome. So I love it. it. I love it. <laughs> Somebody tells me that you. So you know, I'm a big fan of Lost Speedways. We got the TV show. Me and yeah. Matthew Dillner. Somebody tells me that while you were traveling to all these racetracks over the years, that you would go to these Lost Speedways as well. Yeah, I, I well, not 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 the ones that were lost so much, but if I was going through a town, going to do a football game in Texas or in Colorado somewhere, I'd go by. You know, Colorado National. Local I, short track. Local short track. I just wanted to go see. I love tracks. I love, you know, it's like I, I love, you know, one of the things I wanted to do is get a motorhome if I ever got a chance to retire and just go to these places, you know, go yeah. see them and, and uh, or go go find barns with, with parts of race cars out behind them and go just because everybody's got a story. Every track's got a story, which you guys do such a great job of telling. And I love the fact that, you know, you go to Columbia Speedway. I think you or you Bobby Allison or you have Richard Petty. You know, telling the story, the video of Richard Petty, Petty telling the story of the track you were, and you see Wendell Scott pulling off pit road right by Richard is pitting. You know, I, that, those are stories that, that, that you know, the, the speedway may be lost, but the story and the history isn't because of that. I just think you and Matthew do a great job with yeah. that. I know you probably went to Ontario Motor Speedway, but Ontario was so far ahead of its time. It was like space age in the 70s. But I remember Benny Parsons and these guys telling me that you could sit anywhere in the stands at Ontario. And it was, and you know how PA announcers always, your PA sounds like, whoa, 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 you can't hear it. Well, there it was like they had stereo speakers in front of every single seat because of the, the sound system was phenomenal. Yeah. So when they closed that track down, Daytona International Speedway, Bill France bought the sound system. They brought all those amplifiers, those speakers. They brought the two trilons, used to be the scoring trilons at Daytona from Ontario Motor Speedway. Really? And the sound system, it, when Mike Joy and, and, uh, and Ken Squire and myself would do PA at Daytona, 
When they plugged that system in, holy cow, it was like a it's like surround sound. And that was what Ontario had 20 years ago. That They were so far ahead yeah. of their time. Yeah, that's those it. tracks are incredible. Well, man, you got anything on your list? Uh, no, not not really. I do want to say this, though. Ned Jarrett. Yeah. Ned Jarrett. Ned Ned raced Ned raced with your with your grandfather with Ralph and and they were fierce competitors. But Ned's wife Martha and 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 Ralph's wife Martha they were good buddies. They were they tight. Were. And when when Ralph passed, Ned knew. I mean, everybody had respect for Ralph. He's such a tenacious driver. Well, Ned wanted to help your dad, and your dad had always been told by his grandpa, if you're ever going to make it, you need to get off the dirt because the asphalt's where it is. That's where it's going. That's where the money. That's where it's going to be. And so, but Dale needed help getting off the dirt. And so uh, he, he called Ned. Ned offered to help him. So Ned brokered a deal with Harry Gant. Harry Gant had a 64 Chevelle that had won everywhere. You know, Kingsport, Asheville, you know, yep. Coburn, you name it. I mean, that car was unbeatable. When, they, when Harry pulled in, everybody was running for second. So Ned brokered a deal for your dad to buy that 64 Chevelle from Harry. And he even called Harry and said, don't take all the good stuff off of it. Don't take the Avery. Don't change all that stuff. I'm buying this. I'm going to help this boy buy it. Truth be known, I think Ned actually fronted the money wow. to buy the car. And they went to Hickory, uh, and Elvin Rector, the crew chief for Harry Gant, all these guys came down to help this kid they never heard of, this Dale Earnhardt, and here at Hickory. And I was was in the summertime, so I'm working construction and, you know, trying to make money for college. And I go down there when I get off work, and, 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 there, and Ned had even called Gene White's tire guys to come up there, and they're down there trying to work with your dad. And he'd go in the, in the corner, and he's, he's, he's throttle brake, throttle brake, trying to power slide this thing on asphalt. You hear the throttle. He's tearing the tires off of it, just trying to learn to drive asphalt, mm. you know, versus where he had been on dirt. And after a few hours, when Harry's there and all these guys are there, you know, he gets it. He gets it now. You know, I think Ned paid the tire bill, too. Dang. But the point is, a lot of things like that happened. Ned Jarrett was the kind of guy that he helped me. He was like my second father, and he helped your dad. And uh, because it was the right thing to do, because of his respect for Ralph, he wanted to make sure this kid had a shot. And uh, and so I think that's pretty cool that yeah. that he he managed to get he brokered the deal. And I think you know uh, I wasn't sure about the money deal, and so I actually called Ned last night and talked to him. I said, just, I know you don't normally say these things, but I just want to know did you pay for that deal for for Dale Senior? And Ned told me the whole story and said, yeah, he basically fronted the money. <laughs> it's amazing. That's pretty cool. I've got a lot of pictures of that car. And I've tried to match Harry in the car. Yep. With you know because there's some things that you can look at the A post, the B post, right. C post, the rocker panels, stuff like that. The you know headlights, whatever, to try to find similarities in the pictures of trying to understand. Okay, there's the car with Harry in it. Right. And it's orange '77, and here it is with Dad. Uh, but I haven't been able to do it. But it's also so it's even better to hear that story because there's you know no, you know how true that is. And Ned, you're right. You know I think. Ned, there's a couple guys in our lives or in this sport or in this industry that sort of trend. They we have star drivers, we have we have really incredible broadcasters, we have you know people that are just really you know icons in the industry. But there's only there's a few that do do multiple sort of chapters or or affect the sport and yeah in yeah. just really complex and, and, and incredible ways. Ned was a championship driver. You know, Ned uh, was a springboard for guys like my father, his own sons, countless others uh, as, when he was promoting Hickory Motor Speedway. Um, Ned became a, a broadcaster. Yeah, yeah. So incredible and so important uh, yeah, yeah. in that role. Much like kind of Benny Parsons in a way. You know, like, there's several guys that I don't think we can overstate their 
their impact on the sport and how much they helped lift it. Oh, and, and no question. And and for me to this day to be able to stand, our our, our great buddy Bob Jenkins, who's bad, who's got a got a ferocious battle today, and I hope mm-hmm. people will keep the, him in their prayers because he was phenomenal as a as a play by play guy. But he was out with a back back problem, and I'm actually broadcasting Talladega with Ned Jarrett on one side of me and Benny Parsons on the other in October of 2000 when your dad came from 18th with three laps to go to win that race. And Benny says, you know, don't don't forget about Earnhardt or something like that. And next thing you know, here he comes. Here he comes. And and on the white flag lap, as he's knifing his way through, literally just dodging, I mean, three wide, you know, you get pushed in on the apron of the track and going into one and do a heck of a job <laughs> saving the car. If you don't save that car, he doesn't win the race. Yeah. yeah, the caution comes. Great out. driving by you. Uh, yeah, great. Well, you did a great job. And so, <laughs> and so he, you, you save it. And I mentioned, I mentioned going into one. I just watched the clip last night, and I mentioned, you know, great save by you because, and because they went three or four wide, and, and they shove you completely down, sort of like sort of like a cheever move. You know, you're down on the apron at Talladega at speed, and you save it, and your dad comes through, and and uh, you know, we do the Mister Intimidator. You know, will not be denied kind of deal. Car was beaten and battered, and he wins a race. When the race is over. You know, we can't believe what we just saw. So uh, we get in the elevator at Talladega, and we go down and get in the car. And uh, I'm driving, and Benny's riding with me. We're going to the airport. And we, not, neither one of us said a word. And I'll never forget this. I look over at Benny, and I said, Benny, I, I ain't believing what we just saw. And we're cruising around that Bill France Boulevard trying to you know back way out by the airport. And I said, I just don't believe what we just saw. I said, you know, that, that just ain't humanly possible. And Benny just looked over at me and turned his head and smiled. He said, he ain't human. He's Earnhardt. And and I just gave me chills because that was Benny's take on the whole thing, mm. watching him yeah. come from where he came from to win that race. Yeah, that was a pretty good one. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about that apron move you I made. I really <laughs> wish I'd have just won that race Did, instead. <laughs> for, for, we, we had a long conversation yeah. about that. I don't remember who the guest was. but uh, Skinner. Skinner. Oh, it was Skinner. Skinner, Skinner yeah. Yeah. Did I ever? Did I mention in that? Did, I was in the grandstands for that race. Oh, did, yeah. did, I was like, that was really. I was in the grandstands with a buddy of mine. We drove all night, went to the track, sp- slept in our car in the parking lot, and watched that. I wish people look. Anytime you watch the replay of that, it's amazing. Yeah. There's nothing yeah. short of amazing. I wish you could have honestly seen it from my vantage point, where I was sort of low, so you can't see the whole track. My vantage point, which was coming out of turn four. He was already, he was coming up, he was non, he was a non-factor in that whole race, yeah, right? Yeah. When he was coming through the, the crowd, just, I, everyone was just glued to that. Like, who was winning? Nobody even cared. Like, they were watching the, the, the three car right. slice through. Where I was, he left visibility in third or fourth place or second place, whatever it was. And when he popped back into visibility, which I assume would have been, you know, turn three, he was winning. Yeah. And so... When he popped back in, and and when he when they emerged from uh you know out of eyesight and he was leading, I can't think of a more chill inducing moment in my life than that moment right there. It was amazing to see, and then the pl- the place just was going nuts. Oh yeah, the, right. It was in like an animal house, just nuts. Oh, they, were, like, they were just going going ape. And, people and on top of each screaming other, screaming and yelling. Yeah. And Kenny Wallace is right behind him, pushing him, pushing him. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Pretty cool. Yes. Yeah. But then Junior, you know, he had that good save. So that that's what people were going crazy yeah, about. That's right. Well, you you were you were just getting there. You were getting there. Yeah. yeah. You, if you if you don't save it, he dad doesn't win. So that's a 
You I don't know. I think that I think Dave's going to win. Well, yeah. <laughs> I think if Dave, I think if Dale Jr. would have saved it and won the race, Dale Jr. might not have survived after yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I I I used to love when when Junior started you know winning races as he you know his career started. To develop. I remember when and he was win he'd win a race and Dad didn't win and they're in the same race and I'm doing Victory Lane and we go to commercial right before we do Victory Lane and, and Junior we were sitting I can't remember where it was now we were sitting there in Victory Lane. And I'm waiting to interview Junior, who just won the race. Here comes Dad, comes flying into Victor Lane. He leans down to Junior and he says, "Hey, uh, congratulations, great job. I love you. Find a way home." Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> uh, I, 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 he was my ride home, and you I want him to hang out. Right, yeah. <laughs> I, of course. Just, you know, not yeah. for the ride, man. Right, <laughs> for the moment. Yeah, yeah. What a treat this is. I been. know it's been great. People are people are gonna be happy. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it means a lot coming in here, talking to you guys, telling these stories, seeing I, these cars. I appreciate you being. Uh, I appreciate cool. you bring, being honest with us and sharing with us some pretty intimate details of, of uh, you know your life and your career. And I think it just uh, you know speaks to uh, your character. I talked about Ned and and Benny and other people that are that are uh, that have been so important in the sport and that have played so many different roles. You're one of those guys. You know, mm-hmm. you were so important, so beloved as a broadcaster. People, when they found out you're coming on the show today, they're like, you know, they're all, man, I wish she was still in the in the sport broadcasting, wish she was still on pit road, and, you know, because they love you. The drivers trusted you. Uh, you saved a lot of people's lives, but you also gave a lot of people some great advice on things they needed to be doing to take better care of themselves, and you were a great friend to so many people. Um, still an amazing friend today to me, uh, as I know you are so many other people, so... We just really appreciate you taking some time, coming on the show, sharing that with uh, uh, everybody who's listening, and um, we're glad to see you. And you look like you look amazing, man. You don't <laughs> even look. I mean, do you? I don't think you aged. Well, you're you're kind. Put yeah. on that Olympic fire suit. Yeah, again, there you jump go. suit. I bet yeah. you could fit <clears throat> in. Yeah, that, that can of biscuits you just popped open. No. That'd be me bulging out of that fire. Hey, th- thank you so much for for having me. I appreciate it. this. Means a lot to me. It's our pleasure. Dr. Jerry Punch on the Dale Jr. Download. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or the property. It's the location and neighborhood, Dalton. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when we say in-depth, we're talking deep in-depth. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, a home, this is everything you need to know all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Hey, everybody. It's Dale Jr. for the Dale Jr. Download. This is the Ask Jr. portion of the show. With me on on this segment is Leah Vaughn. She'll be teeing up your questions mike davis is here schultz is here but we're looking forward to it it's been a great segment over the last several weeks with a lot of great questions so let's just get to it first question coming from patrick kinzer uh your thoughts on the fire suit pants debate between the nascar boot cut and the indycar high cut there was a lot on social media about this it's clear you know line where uh boot cut for nascar uh whatever you call that other thing for indycar Mm -hmm. 
I understand that you know there's there's not a lot of room down there in the pedal box of an Indy car for all that material. I get it. I think if I was driving an Indy car, I probably would wear a suit similar to what they use. But absolutely, if you're driving a stock car or you're racing at a local short track, boot cut is the way to go. Our next question coming from Dave Sykes. I saw you repost the 60X car that was rebodied into yes. the three for your dad to use on the Budweiser Showdown of Champions Tour. Do you remember those barnstorming tours, and did you ever go on them? So the Budweiser Showdown of Champions, I think that's right. Is that yep. what he's? Yep. So Ron Bouchard, I think uh, Matthew Dillner, if he was here, he would be able to help us a lot on exactly where and when this took place. But basically, Ron Bouchard uh, would, would gather a group of cup drivers when they were racing up north and uh, and go into some of these places to race all weekend, they'd run like six or seven races uh, in 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 five nights or something like that. And it was only about eight to ten of the Cup drivers in race cars that belonged to the racers from that race track. So they, the, you know, it'd be like Josh Berry allowing a cup regular to run his late model stock car against a bunch of other cup regulars at a show. Dad took that really seriously. A lot of the other drivers, I don't know how to, how seriously they took it, but Dad would go up there, work on the car and practice, try to help the guys get the car more comfortable or whatever he needed to do. He didn't just hop in it and race and, and, and collect his check and go home because I'm sure they are all getting paid a couple grand to show up. But Dad took it real serious to get aggressive, spin you out. He wanted to win. I think uh, – the year the car was not one of the years he went up there twice. There was there was the pictures of the car you'll see on the internet where the car has no paint on it. It's just to get the Wrangler decals over a, a tin body. And then there's the the die cast version of the car, like we have here on the sh- on the on the table of the car actually painted with the decals. But one year he won six out of the seven races, just dominated. I thought it was really cool. Unreal that that car still exists. The chassis of that car still exists, and I think I saw in the picture of that post on social media the roof from that actual car that Dad drove in '88 is sitting on that car. The roof. I'd love to have that for my own collection, but either way, uh, hope they restore that car to uh, what it used to be. Our next question coming from Ricky Ellison. Outside of the racing world, who was your first athlete that you liked? Um, outside of the racing world, my first, the first athletes I liked were going to be Washington uh, football team players from the 80s. Daryl Green, Art Monk. I was a huge Art Monk fan. He was a, he was a receiver for uh, Washington and, and I think set the single season record for the most receptions. It's since been broken, but I think he beat, he, he beat Steve Largent for having the single season reception record one year. But if you needed a first down whether you know if it was third down short long didn't matter if you needed first down art could catch the ball and make it happen he just seemed like just such a great person and player i've got a couple autographed items from from art monk dale green was one of the fastest men in the nfl that was kind of his thing cornerback for for washington back then i met a lot of the players over the years and and there's a good handful of them that that uh that that they were a big deal to me uh that was that was outside of racing there wasn't much more in my life important besides how how Washington was doing and and the players on the team and what was going on there. Our next question coming from Michael. We're just going to say Michael P because I'm not even going to try to butcher this last name. Um, why didn't we see the high side used more often until Reddick at the very end of the race? It's so interesting to me because that's a, you know I think a lot of that has to do with the temp. You know we're not racing 
in the s- middle of the summer. And I know that, you know, the, the final race of the year there in November isn't in the summer either, but it tends to be pretty warm down there in, in, the, in the middle of November, mm-hmm. humid. And, and I just, maybe they just didn't get the temperature and the track temp to get some of that, you know, some of that feet on the wall earlier in the race. You know, you, sometimes you you think it's the aero package that dictates, you know, whether the cars can run better on the bottom or the middle of the racetrack. You'd think with a lot of downforce that would definitely help the bottom of the racetrack. But honestly, the Xfinity cars seem to look the same as the cup cars as far as where they were running on the racetrack throughout the event. And uh, the place is getting slick and worn out. You know, running running the high line and running the wall is to be fast up there 10 years ago or five years ago you only needed to be a couple feet or a foot maybe from the wall and you could find that blazing speed that you could produce only running that groove well as the track's worn out and the grip's gone and people have continued to run that area more and more and more and polish that part of the racetrack now you need to be literally an inch off the wall to find that magical three tenths that exist only right there right if you're four inches off the wall you're no better than you are in the middle of the racetrack if you're a foot off the wall you're not no faster than you are if you're running the bottom but if you can get right there on that on that right next to it like only a couple guys are willing to do and only a couple guys can like reddick and noah and a handful of others uh that's where maybe that that high line speed still still exists but eventually maybe it goes away entirely as this track continues to wear and wear and the surface gets older you'd like to think that if you could create a lot of track temp you'd you'd definitely see cars running a lot higher so you you create that track temp by either running a different time of the year or during a different time of day but it's 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 weird to me because we really didn't see that speed from the top till the very end of the race the coolest you know, part of the day uh, from Reddick right at the end. I mean, it was lightning speed, but where was, you know, why, why wasn't that there at the first half of the race? It's hard, hard for me to answer that question. It just, it, it's a riddle, I guess. It's kind of a mystery as to when that top groove is going to come in and why it comes in and because it doesn't seem to make much sense. All right. One more question today coming from Mark McCollum. Based on what you know about the next gen cars, do you think there will be a big change in who runs up front versus what we see now? Are there talented drivers who don't run up front now because of the gap in the equipment? Um, or do you think nothing will change? Oh, I mean, I, the parity that we've seen in the season this far, this this far, into, I mean, we're only three races in, but man, I mean, the parity that, that if you're watching that Homestead race and watching Busher run up front and, and, Newman having an awesome race, uh, McDowell hanging in there with a great run that resulted in a great finish. A lot of the guys that you expect that I had in my fantasy lineup running in 15th, 16th, 17th, Logano, Chase, and those guys kind of struggling all day. I was I – mean, everybody's got to be shocked. Everybody's got to be kind of blown away, and everybody's already trying to um, trying to understand, like, what's causing this. And so people are already starting to, you know, pin some things on the board as to you know there's a parts freeze there's been a change on how they measure the real the wheel wells in in tech that's that's sort of brought the you know brought the, everybody closer together and made a lot more parity it's incredible to watch and if this is if the uh, new car is going to result in more parity i'm all for it you know you want the most competitive motorsport form of motorsport in the world where you know there's 
anybody in the top 25 or top 30 can win. You know, that's what you want. And that that's kind of what this feels like now. You know, and we're seeing some of the younger guys start to have that success. I remember when I started in broadcasting, we had this young guys versus the old guys thing, and it got kind of testy. If you remember, Harvick and a bunch of the guys were like, hey, you know, they, they're not good until they're starting, you know, they're not winning any races, right? We're still all, we're all the, you know, all the old guys are still the guys winning these races, and the young guys had yet to really stake their claim going to victory lane winning races to warrant that kind of attention well now they are you know you got chase elliott winning the championship uh william byron winning this past weekend uh, some of the younger guys are starting to starting to win races you know and and uh we may be seeing a bit of a shift uh in the sport and in, in uh who's who's the guy who do you expect to to be successful um it might not be the same names that we've been accustomed to over the last several years and Putting, I'm not putting anybody's career in the coffin, but I'm just saying there's tons of parody. I'm 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 blown away just watching that race this past weekend. I was blown away by the performance of some of these teams, and I'm all for it. I hope it continues. We need a we need a successful Roush uh, Fenway organization. It's amazing to be able to see front row or a team like that. It's been in the sport grinding and grinding for so many years. Finally, start to see some real true success and great performance. It's very encouraging for owners, new owners, track house, those guys go out there and they run in the top 20, competitive all night for Daniel. So, you know, Daniel's making a move in his career and hoping that it's going to be a good, successful one. And it seems to be uh, going in the right direction. So pretty cool to see some of the new stuff happening. All right, y'all, great questions. Appreciate it, Leah. Thanks for everybody for supporting our podcast and supporting the Dale Jr. Download and Dirty Mo Media. We'll talk to you guys next week. All right, everybody, last call. It's been a great show. Thanks to Dr. Jerry Punch for coming on. Great questions again for Ash Jr. Great open segment discussion, Mike. Thanks for being my therapist again. You're welcome. Text in the mail. Yeah. Okay, like, good. Yep. Like we said during the Ash Jr. portion of the show, the uh, Dale Jr. download on NBCSN this week is Thursday, 8 p.m. All right, don't miss it. We'll keep reminding you, follow Dirty Mo Media on uh, all social media handles to keep up to date on when you can watch the Dale Jr. Download on NBCSN Thursday at 8 p.m. this week. Door Bumper Clear, a new episode out after Homestead. And uh, the guys talk about Tyler Reddick running the high line. They talk about slower cars, pros and cons of teams using SMT data. Listen now. Yeah, same thing on all major podcast platforms. Door Bumper Clear. How, how's their shows going, Mike? Oh, they're morons, and uh, oh, and it's going well. Yeah. I think that that's that, that's what I mean by that's that. That's what we're going for. Well, yeah. I, I would be interested to hear uh, what they think about Tyler Reddick running the high line, slower cars, I, I listen pros to and cons of SMT data. In, in all seriousness, and I, you know what, I, I'm going to regret saying this, but I, I really do enjoy more than any other place to hear their take on the race first. Uh, they, they actually do bring a lot of enlightenment to uh, to in, in processing what you just saw. So I'll give them that. Credit. I love the fact that they're breaking news. They're always the they spotters, don't even know it. They're gossipy little guys. <laughs> they're and, so they're, yeah yeah. They're, they're breaking the news. It, it, they they break it by whining. I mean, like it's it's beautiful. All right, y'all. Well, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for supporting the Dale Jr. Download and Dirty Mo Media. Hope you enjoyed it. Have a great week, and we'll see you next week.
this bit of badassery was badassery was made by badassery. Dirty Mo Media. Dirty Mo.